Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the last episode of the Empire Podcast of this absolute shit-stained farce of a year that is 2020. Perhaps the worst year in living memory, with one small proviso. Liverpool won the title, so I'm fairly happy about that. Oh, and also The Mandalorian was great. Two things that were great about this year, but this is not just any normal episode of the Empire Podcast. This is our review of the year. Oh yes, indeed. It is a bumper, jam-packed edition filled with us talking about the year that was, what a year it was as well, answering your questions and having a general giggle. And uh, for this, I'm joined by three colleagues. Oh yes, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. As you might expect, our geek queen, Helen O'Hara, is here. Hello, Helen. Hi, how you doing? Yeah. Yes. You're, you're, you've set your camera up in an interesting way, that you're looking... Sideways. You're I can't look sideways. at the camera and talk and no, look you at can't. you guys. No, you can't. This is, this, yeah. It's like I'm eavesdropping. It's like we've got a little window into your world. It's, it's incredible. Uh, we're also joined by the kindest, gentlest member of the Empire team. Terry, I'm going to get to you in a second. Obviously, <laughs> when I say kind and gentle, I'm referring, of course, to our very own baby Yoda, Ben Travis. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I am good. Despite all the circumstances, I am doing okay, which is as much as we can ask for. Hope everyone else mm, is doing good. okay too. Absolutely. See? Kind and gentle. Gentle Ben. Uh, and last but not least is Empire's editor-in-chief, who is ending this year in our studio, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that's where you are right now. It is, of course, the one, the only Terry White. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. Why are you in the studio? I, I, have, I haven't been in that place for nine months. Well, um, I've been coming into uh, the Empire office all alone for pretty much four months now. And uh, that includes sneaking into the studio. When I came in today, I broke the light and broke one of the chairs. So <laughs> 2020, <laughs> 2020 is going to end like it's been all year so amazing how is the place how is the studio how's it holding up it's you know it's all right i can feel the ghosts the ghosts of people chris <laughs> you know i remember being in here with you and helen and oh, james dyer the bellend happy and times. little ben travis <laughs> and you know the joy the laughs the sadness the rouse oh, when will we have oh. it back when oh when when do you remember the last time i don't remember the last thing we did in that studio. Does anyone remember the, the last thing we recorded was? Was it just a regular pod? I think it was a regular pod. The one I remember is when we did the the Onwards spoiler special. And I remember at the end of that spoiler special, somebody tweeted us way down the line in 2020 saying, oh, I've just caught up with Onward on Disney+, Plus, so I listened to the spoiler special. And it ends with um, Chris dropping the bombshell that Fast 9 had been moved back by an entire year. And I basically screamed <laughs> instinctively um, in... in distress at the thought of the magnet plane the movie being pushed back an entire year um mm. and that i think was my last time in the pod booth oh my god i think it wasn't far off for us uh yeah, yeah. it was uh, whilst recording one of the podcasts that i thought you know what maybe being in such close proximity with our faces pointed towards each mm -hmm. other you know <laughs> spitting air into the room for two hours every week is perhaps not the best way to go maybe yeah. we should do this thing remotely from now on because obviously 2020 was the year of COVID-19 it was the year of the big old pandemic that brought everything to what? a halt brought life to a halt oh sorry Helen Did, I completely what, forgot to tell told you me. Oh my I god. Just, sorry 
so sorry. Do you know about Santa? But yeah, he's coming in a few days as we record this. Yep, that's true. He totally hasn't succumbed to his symptoms. He's totally what? fine. He he will be. He's been vaccinated. It's all good. The oh, Santa bodies, Chris. The Santa bodies. <laughs> hey. We're going to catch you up with that afterwards, Helen. But this was the year of COVID-19. It brought everything to a halt. And of course, it brought movies to a halt. It brought Hollywood to a halt for a while. And it completely and utterly just blue Lee release schedule that had been set for 2020 apart. Uh, but despite that, this was a good year, I'd say, cinematically. And, uh, you know, everyone rallied and we watched things on online and we watched things on our computers and occasionally we get out to a screening. And it's been an interesting year with perhaps the, uh, the, the usual suspects not necessarily at the front of the queue when it comes to looking back at the year. Before we get into talking about that and, to- and answering a whole bunch of listener questions, how has your year been? Terry, how's your year been? It's been a heck of a year from you. You you uh you expelled a book from your brain and a and a human from your body. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and look how Ben's grown already in just ten short months. <laughs> ben being the book. <laughs> yeah, Ben is the book. <laughs> the book of Ben. Oh, the book of Ben. Coming to Disney Plus December twenty twenty one. Um, yeah, it's been a weird year. I left on maternity leave in February thinking, oh, you know, what kind of editor will I be as a mother? And, and you know, what will my work become to me? And start to have all of these existential crises. And then a global pandemic came, swept all that along away. And uh, it's been a roller coaster ever since. A child, a book and, you know, empire is um is ending the year in a different place than than we began it we're all apart we ha- haven't seen each other in the flesh in quite some time um mm-hmm. and you know it's i think it's been kind of in many ways a a phenomenal year and i say that um you know notwithstanding the the awful kind of personal tragedies people have suffered and the sadness that people have had to deal with this year i think for me it's it's brought our community together it's brought us as a team together but the wider film community and and our audience and our readers um i don't know if we've ever been closer as a gang, as as the Empire family, as we call it. And it's been great to be able to be there for people, um, to hopefully through the pod and the magazine be a bit of a place of hope and escape for people. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I've kind of loved the tightening of our community in the face of, of what's been a very challenging year. Well said. Yeah. Helen, what's your year been like? Yeah, that has definitely been the upside and, and people have, you know, been great, generally speaking, I feel like. And we've had loads of messages in the last few days from people sort of thanking us for the podcast and so on this year. And honestly, thanks for listening because it gave us something to do because God knows we had little enough else to focus on. What I've seen mostly, and this is maybe me being Pollyanna-ish again, what I've seen mostly is people really working hard to look after each other and look out for each other and keep each other safe and, you know, do what they can. And, you know, I even include filmmakers and film stars and people who've like done all of these crazy charitable things they've done all of these online little silly games they've you know been doing instagram stories and twitter things and just nonsense to keep everybody you know distracted from the awfulness of the world and i think it's been incredible to see so many creative people use their powers if you like in such positive ways um and i think it's been really encouraging to see and you know this may not 
always be the case that we, we, we always focus on, but people who are in studios and distribution and ex- exhibition working so hard to try and get back to normal in a way that's safe for everybody, in a way that allows people to escape the real world for a couple of hours and watch a movie, um, but in a way that won't endanger them. And I think, you know, they've done extraordinary work a lot of the time. And and that's from tiny little indie distributors to all of the big Hollywood studios trying to figure out their way through this financial minefield for them. You know, it's an absolute nightmare scenario for Hollywood. So... You know, while we have not always agreed with all of their decisions and we have talked on the podcast about things we wish had happened differently or in a different schedule, I think they've been doing their best and, you know, fair play to everybody for that. Again, well said. Ben, now it's your turn to say something well. (laughs) Oh God. Oh no, the pressure. Yeah, it's not been a great year. It's been a difficult year in a lot of ways. I count myself very lucky in a lot of senses of the circumstances that I've found myself in. I know a lot of people have felt the sharp end of this. Everybody's felt the blunt end of of what's been going on. A lot of people have also felt the very sharp end. I felt that a little bit more towards the end of this year. There's been a couple of swift kicks in the nuts um, Mm. over the last couple of months. But the thing, like Terry was saying, and like Helen was saying, just getting to be part of empire having the conversations that we're having like i i love pop culture so much there are there are albums there are shows there are films from these months that i think because we all needed to bury our heads into something that i've really really fallen for and have a deep sort of um affection and connection to i think some of those things on the one hand i i feel like with the stuff that we do at empire it's for a lot of people i don't know pop culture is in the background it's it's the sort of background noise of your life and at the same time it's the thing that that's in the forefront of your mind the whole time it's what you think about all the time that through whatever is going on and i've i've massively felt that like like you were saying chris having the mandalorian is just something that we get together every week and talk about it and Mm. after we put the episodes out we get people talking to us about it and having that Mm. ongoing dialogue between us as a team and between everybody else who's been listening and, and reading has been a really lovely thing uh, to see. So I I hope everybody is um, is doing as okay as possible out there. I know, like I said, some people have felt the sharp end of this a lot more th- than I have. And um, I just, yeah, thank you if you've stuck with us and if you've been part of that conversation with us. That's been a huge help for me um, and mm. yeah, hopefully for you guys too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now it's my turn to say something well. <laughs> Fuck off, COVID. There yes. We go. Yeah. Beautiful. Succinct. Suck it. <laughs> and so say all of us. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. I mean, I know this is a film podcast and we'll be talking about the review of the year in cinema, but um, it's been, a, and I know this isn't an episode of the Pilot TV podcast, and I know, Terry, you guys have already recorded your review of the year, uh, but... For me, TV has stepped up as well. Not that many shows were made before the pandemic, obviously, but it's been a really, really great year in terms of TV for me. You know, I've loved the likes of Ghosts and Ted Lasso, which are exactly the sort sort of optimistic, hopeful, very, very sweet shows that I I need it right now. Uh, Better Call Saul season five was incredible, but for me, it's it's been a year of The Mandalorian because of the way that Disney Plus worked, it rolled out very, very late in the UK uh, as opposed to pretty much everywhere else in the world. We only got the Mando. <laughs> we only got Mando in April, I think it was. Uh, end and of March. End of March. Hmm. Okay. All right. So Because it was like ten days after we went into lockdown and my God, we were counting down the days. Like it was okay. All necessary. Right. <laughs> All right. And we got both seasons of The Mandalorian this year. And for me, I'm wearing a baby Yoda 
baseball cap. Uh, it's reignited and rekindled my love of Star Wars in a way that the new trilogy of movies just didn't, even though I really, really like The Last Jedi. Uh, you know, to the point where I'm buying merchandise again, I'm wearing stuff, I've got a little Baby Yoda Funko Pop, I'm holding it up right now. And it just, it made me remember what Star Wars can be. And uh, so I'm very, very grateful that we had The Mandalorian seasons one and two in this year. And now it's killing me that we're going to have to wait at least a year before we get the third slice of The Mandalorian. Uh, so it's been a big, it's been big for me in that way. Uh, it's been something for me to hold on to. And again, yes, you may roll your eyes, but honestly, genuinely, it was huge for me on a, on a personal level that my team finally won the league after 30 years. It really gave me something to hold on to uh, when the world was going to shit. But listen... <laughs> Enough of the world going to shit. Uh, let's take the first question, and hopefully it will have nothing to do with COVID. It comes from at Andrew Galvin 14, and he asks if COVID... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a COVID question. Oh, they're all COVID questions. <laughs> if COVID hadn't happened and nothing had moved into 2021, what do you think would have been the top five films in the worldwide box office? It's a good question at Andrew Galvin 14. A better question than I'm sure Andrew Galvin 8 would have come up with. (laughs) That guy's a prick. (laughs) I hope Andrew Galvin 8 isn't listening. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope there isn't an Andrew Galvin 8. At least it didn't say anything libelous. Okay, what would have been top of the box office? So potentially, if Bond is a return to Skyfall form, as we hope, rather than a bit of a spectre alike, that could well have made over a billion and made the top five. Yeah? Is that one? Do we agree? Yeah, Do we I have bombed yeah. on my yeah. little yeah. list for this. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about Venom Let There Be Carnage? Bearing in mind, globally, Venom, before the carnage, took 900 million global box office. <sighs> but that's really depressing. I know, but I, I'm just here with the truth. <sighs> I said this on the Soul Sport special we recorded this morning. I can't, I don't, and I haven't edited yet, so I don't know if I've left it in. But uh, so if I'm repeating myself, then I apologize. But if I've edited it out, then I'm not repeating myself. And this is a totally new observation. Okay. So I wonder if this might have been the first year in a long, long time where we didn't have a billion dollar grocer. Well, Ooh. I think Fast and Furious 9 might have done as well. All right. Okay. I think there's a, there's a few real well, serious potentials. But like Fast and Furious 9, so Fast and Furious 8 was comfortably over the billion mark. Fast and Furious 9 had a magnet plane. So I feel like we were all itching to see that. <laughs> Black Widow, I think, is actually a pretty pretty strong candidate for a billion. I'm not sure what else. What do, what do you guys have? I mean, the ones for me, I, I'm not sure any of these would have hit a billion, but they might have done. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984 would have mm. had to made a, make a leap on the last movie to get to a billion, but it's not impossible. Uh, no Time to Die. It would have been the second Bond film to hit a billion, but again, not impossible. It's a, it's it looks really great. If it's as good as a, the marketing suggests, then yeah, there might be a, a a very there might have been a very very strong rewatch factor. Fast and Furious Nine is a very very good point. Uh, Terry said, "Venom, let there be carnage." And even though, I mean, yeah, you're probably right about that. That's depressing. And then. Black Widow? I don't think. I don't think so. I don't, oh, I, do. I, don't, I don't think they're expecting it to hit a billion either. I think it's very much in the Ant-Man kind of uh, spectrum for them, where they'll, they'll be happy with six to 700 million, but anything above that is massively overachieving. I think that's that's a billion for sure for, for Black Widow. If you think of the, the goodwill and the hype 
that Marvel has post Endgame, obviously post Spider Man as well, piggybacking into a whole new era, even if it's a slightly strange way into Phase Four. Um, I think all of that, plus the fact that it's Scarlett Johansson, means that worldwide there is a huge, huge audience for Black Widow. I think that for me is is nailed on a billion. Well, one that I that is by no means guaranteed, but I was really intrigued to see how it would do, and I'm still intrigued to see how it would do, is in the heights. Because we saw with things like Black Panther and stuff, when you have an underserved audience who suddenly get this thing that is so, so much for them and about them, it feels like In the Heights massively plays into that. Like Lin-Manuel Miranda's a huge deal. Uh, obviously, Hamilton was was a massive thing that happened this year coming to Disney+. Plus and um, the, the reaction that that had, the way that that is such a cultural phenomenon, I'm so intrigued when In the Heights comes out to see, because I, I, I think that has potential to be absolutely massive i i mean who knows maybe a billion is out of reach for that yeah but. i i think there is no scenario where that makes a billion i do think it's going to perform well for all the reasons you said but i think a good performance for that film is about 200 million like i, I would be amazed amazed if it passed 500 terry you're still sick of the venom yeah, Venom, Fast and Furious, I think, easily. Unfortunately, this does not bring me joy um, to share this news with you. Why doesn't that bring you joy? Fast 9, oh it's my... Magnet Plane, it's finding out how it's Han is back absurd. from the dead. It's Vin Diesel's secret brother played by John Cena. Like, I'm going to see that a hundred times when it comes out. I am going to make sure yeah. it gets past a billion. This is your fault. This is your fault. And everything you've just said is exactly why this is ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> it is ridiculous. No one's questioning that it's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm with Helen on Black Widow, right? Because I think that I remember Black Panther and the amount of people who were so cynical and un- really unsure about whether Black Panther could get anywhere near a billion. I think it's really easy to look back on it and, and say, oh, yeah, that was always a guarantee to go over the line. It really wasn't. People were really mm. concerned about how it would do. A lot of it was unknown. But I think Ben makes the point about when you do have an um, an audience that hasn't been served for that long and you have this incredible um, talent, both on camera and off. And when you think that easily did a billion, one, what, 1.34, I think, in the end. And I think Black Widow would be around definitely easily over a billion. Um, and I think there was a real appetite for that this year. But I think, and I stand by Venom. I think it, it, you know, nobody was more surprised than me when that did over 800 million. I mean, what the actual fuck? But it did. And I think that I think, again, there was real appetite um, for a sequel. And I think it could definitely have built on the first and, and it wouldn't have surprised me to see it breach a billion. Yeah, I mean, Captain Marvel went past a billion and no one necessarily expected that mm. until the last minute. So I think you're right. I guess we'll find out in May, but uh, I think it might stand in its favour. In fact, there won't be any cinemas open, of course, uh, notwithstanding. But the thing that might stand in its favour is that by the time Black Widow comes out, it'll have been almost two years since we had uh, a cinematic entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And by that point, of course, we'll have feasted on WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And even Loki, I think, will have finished by the time Black Widow comes into cinemas Uh which might might have an impact on things, but you know we we, we shall see. Uh, but I maybe you know I'm sure you guys are right and I'm wrong, but I just didn't. I don't think it has. I think it maybe gets to seven seven fifty, 
but I don't think it gets anywhere near a billion. But but uh, but there are other films to consider as well. I mean, you know, Mission Impossible Seven. Again, those mm-hmm. films haven't got anywhere near a billion, but each one's been bigger than the last. And you know, God knows what Macquarie would have had crews doing in order to get that one billion. That might have got there. I don't think it would have done, but it might have got there. Uh, there is West Side Story. If you're talking about musicals doing really no. well, really well, I don't think it would have done. But what about Top Gun? The, the, the Top Gun thing, like, it feels like the world is primed for that sort of big, crazy action comeback. It's Tom Cruise. You've got a whole generation who grew up on the original. You've got this looking, like, very modern and very practical and physical in a way that a lot of action stuff doesn't tend to be these days. Like, I think that had a lot of potential as a huge summer movie um, that, that sort of serves a lot of audiences, has massive bankable worldwide star power mm. attached to it. And from the trailers, like, it looks undemanding fun. It looks like big, exciting. You don't really have to have seen the original, but if you do, you know you're going to go and see this one. Um, I think Top Gun should be massive. Yeah, but a billion? Mm. I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm, no. But, you know, but but hey-ho. So the top five for me would have been Bond. Oh, God, you're right. You're right, Terry, aren't you? Fenham. Oh God! What if Venom had been the number? I mean, it could have been brilliant. It could have been brilliant. I might mm-hmm. still be brilliant. Might still. And uh, a movie I thought about this the other day is like: Has everybody forgotten there's a film called Morbius coming out with Jared Leto as a living vampire? Yes. And I just I was walking along the other day, going, "Oh my God! There's a Morbius movie," and you know it's been delayed as a result of the pandemic, which just goes to show every cloud. But oh. <laughs> so you got uh, you got Bond, you got Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, you got Black Widow, you got uh, what else do you say? Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious, and then Venom. That'd be the top five. There we go. Oh my word! Cinema uh, reigns. <laughs> it really does it really does uh, I think a lot of these are going to be <laughs> slightly COVID related at Nigel Saunders 76 asks if you could see one film cancelled from 2020 this Christmas Eve what would it be question is this mm-hmm. in cinemas are we are we assuming from the, for this question it's in cinemas because my answer yes. changes they're opening up your favourite cinema just for you and they're going to put on all sorts of great catering as well Dune <laughs> <laughs> it's June. It's definitely June. Think about, think about it, Helen. Think about June. it. Take some time to think about it. Still June. Consider your answer. Walk around. Mull it over. Walk around with the film on. I'm the film's name on your Chris. Lips for- it's okay, June. It's June. It's June. All right. Why June? Um, I'm so hyped. I'm so hyped for it. Um, obviously, I wrote the Empire feature, so you know that I was on sets. The sets were unbelievably enormous. I have never seen the like. And I've been on Marvel movies and I've been on DC movies and I've been on Harry Potter movies. These things were bigger and more spectacular. And I'm just, if it lives up to the care and the attention to detail that they had put into the design and the casting of this thing, it's going to be extraordinary. Um, And I cannot wait to see it on the big screen and not, I pray, on HBO Max. (laughs) <laughs> no disrespect I'm sure HBO Max is very nice and has good films but come on I'm sure he's a lovely fellow but uh, absolutely I've heard nice things yes but I don't much care for his way of presenting movies uh, if it's all the same with you uh, Terry what film would it be oh okay bear with me but it would be Top Gun Maverick <laughs> oh really Hundred percent. It's well, and I had the same question as Helen about um, where I was seeing this, because if it was um, at home, I was going to say "Promising Your Woman," which I have seen and adored, and I'm sure we'll get onto later 
Yes, we mm-hmm. will, because I want to talk about it. Um, but if we're talking about <laughs> in the pictures, I am desperate to see Top Gun Maverick. So desperate. I loved Top Gun as a kid. Everything I see, I just increasingly lose my shit at. I mean, Rooster, don't get me started on Miles Teller as Rooster. And Val Kilmer... <laughs> And Jennifer Connolly looking like Jennifer Connolly, and Tom Cruise still looking like Pete. Like, how does he still look the same? And the planes and the ships and the everything. <laughs> oh Christ! Merry Christmas. That's the tagline, actually. The planes and the ships and the everything. Oh Christ! <laughs> oh, I, honestly, that that is the kind of full, pure-hearted. Brilliant escapist, big blockbuster popcorn fund that I am desperately missing um, mm. and desperately in need of, and that's what I would very much like for Christmas. Santa, thank you. Yes, yes. What if this can be arranged? This film's finished. I know. You know <gasps> we can have a conversation with with. We can just get on the phone to Paramount. Cruise is in London right now. I heard someone shouting outside my flat earlier on. It might have been him. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. The facts aren't in yet. So, you know, all we have to do is just open the window and shout out, Oi, Tommy, show us Top Gun. And then he'll go, okay. And then we'll be, we'll be fine. It'll be amazing. Okay. I'm going to make all that right. happen. I'm going to Boom. make that happen. Terry, will, and June, June's not finished though, Helen. I'm sorry. What? Um, no, but it is yeah. practically... Oh. Uh, it's not quite. No, they still need to do the the CG fixing Oscar Isaac's face. Why? Why are they fixing his face? Because it's too handsome. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's too damned handsome. In a year in which we've had Timothy Olyphant on a desert planet, oh. can you imagine? Now they drop in Oscar Isaac and onto that. Well, oh, it's, it's too much. It's too much to handle. That's why the planets are deserts because it's so <laughs> hot. <laughs> That's not where I went with that. Okay. <laughs> oh god! Oh god! Oh my word! I thought I thought because there was no yeah, moisture no, left. I got, I got, okay. I got no, even yeah. Yeah. Let's not go there. No, because no. it would be the opposite, wouldn't it? It'd be like a jungle planet teeming with life. What? Uh, ben, what film? Um, if you could see any film that was cancelled this year. Great, I'll just I'll just reverse this out of that weird cul-de-sac that Chris took us down. I I, I mean I literally just mentioned it, but I am I am so excited for In the Heights. Like I just feel like that big outpouring of joy and vibrancy and heart and community mm. and music and music and like really mm. catchy, clever, funny songs um, mm. is is very much what we need right now. But that is a prime like see this in the cinema i want that to be a a safely packed cinema of people like just having the time of their lives and um on that front as well if i could pick anything it might genuinely be fast and furious 9 in the peckinplex because <laughs> i saw i saw fast 7 in the peckinplex and it was like it was like going to a rocky horror screening it was like everyone was just like shouting stuff at the screen everyone was like cheering like everyone it was just absolutely raucous and if it was anything else if it was any other film that i like genuinely really cared about i kind of would have been fuming i would have been like i hate going and there's people talking and like no just watch the film no fast nine it should be all screenings of fast nine should be audience participation screenings everyone should just do whatever they want in those uh screenings and i will be there uh shouting along too um uh, the other thing is i'm just like i'm so intrigued by last night in soho like that mm-hmm. feels like such an unknown mm-hmm. quantity 
And it's been a great, great year for horror uh, in the film sense and Mm -hmm. in the societal sense. (laughs) I'm really, (laughs) I'm kind of intrigued to see what Edgar does going full tilt into psychological horror, even just those initial images and stuff we've seen. It feels very mysterious and strange and unlike a lot of stuff that's out at the moment. So Last Night in Soho would be a real like, ooh, I keep forgetting that that was going to be out this year because we've seen so Mm. little from it, Mm. but we know that it's done and I just... I can't wait to see what that ends up being. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That would be on my list, as would The Kingsman, um, as would, in terms of horror stuff, A Quiet Place Part 2. Yes. Which was snatched so cruelly so from close. our grasp. We were so close. Some people had tickets for a screening. I have my tickets, yeah. I'm keeping them as a as a souvenir of this shit show of a year. And some people in America have seen it. I remember um, because we were literally days away from that screening and sometimes those screenings happen in America just before they do here. So there are people in the world who have had nine months worth of having seen A Quiet Mm. Place Part 2. A Quiet Place Part 2 is a big one for me. Uh, But if it came down to it, I'm going to go for two that I think were also cruelly snatched away from us right at the death. We were asked this in our last live show we did. And I said at the time, Bond. Bond is a film I would watch. Mm. But I think I've changed my mind. And I would still love to sit down if No Time to Die is a belter and Craig has gone out in a high, then that would be a great treat for Christmas Eve. But I also think that after, as I've said, almost two years without my MCU cinematic fix, Mm. a bit of Black Widow would go down very, very nicely of a Christmas Eve. So that's the film I would choose because I am a walking parody. Here's another question. This comes from Hendiat Triss. What is the best film title of the year? And why is it a runoff between the period at the end of Emma and Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn? (laughs) Can I just, um, can I say on behalf of Empire's production editor, Liz Beardsworth, just how fucking awful that film title is. Do you know how much space running that full title takes up in every magazine that we mention the film name in? It's just horrendous. So I feel like I have to say that on her behalf. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I can't imagine the full stop at the end of Emma because isn't our isn't the way we do it in Empire is that we take our lead from the poster. So if something appears in the poster, that that's the way the title Correct. appears in the magazine. So you have Emma full stop bringing every sentence to a full stop. And that's yep. really annoying. Yes, it yeah, is. Yeah. Nobody's thinking about house style in these moments. Nobody is. Thankfully, the movie wasn't much cops. So we don't talk about it much or, and we write about it less. It was fine. I think, the, I think actually those two reasons, though, are the reasons that these two movies do not have the best title of the year. Um, and there were a few really good titles. I really enjoyed Never Rarely, Sometimes Always as a title. It has extra resonance in the movie. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a title with meaning, which I think always gets you bonus points. But it's too difficult to remember. It is a little bit difficult to remember. And we have had some similar titles over the years, yeah. but now this is the one of those that sticks in my head. And that's why it gets, again, bonus points. Because I, uh, before it came out, I was confused between all these films that had similar titles. You know, there's the Bill Nye one, which was Sometimes, sometimes Always Never. Sometimes Always. Sometimes, sometimes Rarely sometimes Always. Always Never, because it's sometimes the Sometimes Always Never, yeah. So Sometimes <laughs> Always Middle... And then never bottom. Yeah. Bottom. And yeah. then there was a third one that has an even more confusing title, but never, rarely, sometimes, always is now the one that sticks yeah. for me. See, I can never remember Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no, no good, good, very bad day. Very bad day. Did I just get it right? Yeah, I think you did. Holy shit. Stop clocks and all that. I don't know. Any other contenders for best title of the year? I've got a bunch. 
So for me, mm. uh, an easy one, Parasite. I just think is an amazing mm. title. As you watch the film, the meaning of that title and who or what it might refer to shifts every half an hour or so into the film. And I think it also sends you into the film with a preconceived notion of what it might be. And that film is all about subverting your expectations. And I think it does that really brilliantly. I really liked uh, a film I really liked that had a great title that not quite enough people have seen is The Vast of Night, which Mm -hmm. is on Amazon Prime. It's a really incredible sort of, on the one hand, low key, but on the other hand, really ambitious, independent sci-fi film. It's set in the 50s and it riffs a lot on kind of radio serials and on the nature of broadcasting and of conversation and of dialogue and trying to reach something out there. And that title, The Vast of Night, I just think Mm. is so evocative has such an air of mystery around it that completely ties into the film and what it's about on a literal level and the sort of twilight zoney things that it's riffing on so i thought that was a great title if people have listened to uh, welcome to night vale the podcast it feels like the film version of that almost it's a really yeah it's really eerie i love that Mm. Uh, I mean, the other one for me, uh, Vampires versus the Bronx, another yes. film that I really enjoyed. But that was one where uh, it was a classic Netflix thing where it, they just dropped this film with literally no fanfare at all. And I saw that title. It was in October. It was in the run up to Halloween. I saw that title, Vampires versus the Bronx. And I was like, I need to see what this film is. And then it was great. It was a really fun film. And that really pulpy title, again, just completely <laughs> sold what, what that film was about. Parasite, I'm totally with Ben that was actually my favourite title of the year Um, second is a film that I did not like but I liked the title Um, Mm -hmm. so Borat's subsequent movie film Mm. which I know I'm the only person in the Empire office to think it was facile and irritating and yet the title is also facile and irritating (laughs) and yet really made me laugh and I thought it was weirdly clever even though I didn't feel that about the rest of the film Um, And but my favourite favourite title um, of the year was um, Dick Johnson is Dead <laughs> which was one of my te- favourite films of the year it was in my top 10 and the kind of flippancy and the casualness of the title of, of just saying that statement he's dead it completely ties in anybody who's seen that film will know what an absolute weird out there idiosyncratic treat of a film mm-hmm. that movie is um, so that would mm. be my number one that's a great title. Yeah. Yeah. Why Don't You Just Die is the name of a film that came out this year that I think is a pretty good title. Uh mm-hmm. don't you guys. Kirk is another film that came out this year that has a great title. No, I, I've never heard of that film before. I'm just looking at a list of films that came out this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we pretty much covered them all. I think we've, we've pretty much said the good ones. Um I didn't like the film at all, but Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, people might like that because mm. it's got a fairly big, complicated title. That's usually quite fun, unlike the movie, of course. Mm. Uh, the Five Bloods is a pretty good title. The Five Bloods, yeah. Yep. I will accept that. Uh, there was an Irish film called Get Duked, which possibly has the worst title of the year, and it was originally called Boys in the Wood. Oh, much better. And it was a much better title, so I don't know why the hell they changed it. Uh, sorry, a contender for worst title has got to be uh, P.S. I still love to all the boys I loved before. P.S. I still loved you. That's just a mess of a title, and it's a cute film. It's not as cute as the original, but it's, it's cute. But the title is just embarrassing. Yes, um, but I think we can all agree that the title of the year and the film of the year, in fact, is Hubie Halloween. Oh my god! What? What's wrong with that? 
let's have another question. This comes from at Ellen Sharp. She asks, what's your favourite moment from this year? This is a big one. Ooh. Favourite moment. Presumably from a film, rather than just, you know, a good moment. So imagine giving birth, Terry, would have been a good one for you. Oh, I think about it daily. <laughs> Do you know what it's like to have your stomach cut open, Chris, and a tiny, tiny little human lifted out of it? Weirdly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, just because you watched that scene in Prometheus, that doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, I, when I commit the Total Recall cosplay, I really commit. <laughs> Favourite moment from the year. Terry, do you have one? I do. And this actually is weirdly tied into your question um, because I think it's also about where and when I experienced this moment. So my moment is the end scene of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm. Anybody who's watched that movie will know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who wasn't, I'm not going to describe it because it will entirely ruin it for you. Um, If you haven't seen it, please go and watch it. It is entirely, it's the most emotional, moving, visceral, beautiful moment, I think, on film this year. And it was actually the last film I saw in the cinema before lockdown. I went for baby cinema with my son, who was, I think, 10 days old at the time. And it was his first cinema experience. Um, And obviously, because I'm me, I took him to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire um, for his first movie. And... It's really like a little bit cheesy, but I tell you, sitting in a cinema watching that movie of all movies as the world kind of teeters on apocalypse around you, but holding your son to you while that final scene played out, that is that is easily my moment of the year, film or mm. otherwise. What did uh, Emsworth think of it? Two thumbs up. <laughs> Just flailing generally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he couldn't technically move his thumbs independently at that point, but but yeah, you sensed it. You sensed it. Yeah, yeah. Did he is did he shit his pants? I mean, is that and is that a good sign for a, for a film if you're a kid? Is that like the I mean, we did. Um, I the first the first film he watched actually was Wolf of Wall Street at home uh, when he was three days old. And he shit himself and threw up during that film. So I'm, oh, I'm taking so that as a, as a five-star <laughs> review. <laughs> oh, dear. Again, that's exactly what happened to me when I first saw it in the press screen. <laughs> I'm sure there are moments for me from films this year. But for me, it's about an experience that I don't ever want to take for granted again, which is the experience of going to the cinema and mm. the experience of... You know, we're very, very lucky in our jobs. We get to go to press screens. And one of my favorite moments was, well, it had been, I think, easily three months, maybe more, in the lockdown without seeing a movie. And then I went to see a film whose name I cannot say, but I went along to see that. And it was just me and two other people in a room in central London that they had managed to hire out. And it was all very, very COVID safe. And I sat down and I, watched this movie and the credits came up and the, the movie is is a, is a lot of fun and I, but again I can't say what it is and it just that experience felt really special mm. to me in a really really weird way this is the sort of thing you take for granted so easily uh, and to the point where you can even become jaded and consumed by other things to do with the job and sometimes maybe go oh, I'm not going to go to that screen and I'll, I'll catch it later on or I'll catch another screen or maybe can you send me a link instead mm. And now I think if I was given a choice between watching a movie on a link 
or seeing it in person, I would always choose seeing it in person. There's something oh, so sure. special about that. And not not even that experience was very, very unique and, and rarefied. But I'm also thinking about my first time back at a press screening, which was Tenet and going along and Jimbo was there and we had lunch beforehand, socially distanced, of course. And it was just great seeing him for, you know, even though he's a bell end, obviously he's still somehow one of my best friends, which is perhaps more of a judgment of me than it is of him. And it was just great seeing him again and seeing, seeing Tenet. The movie itself was the movie, but there's a moment, if you're seeing a film at an IMAX, there's a moment where they do the IMAX countdown and they, you know, you'll know what I'm talking about. People who've been to IMAX mm. theaters where they, they show the, you know, they, they're doing the countdown of the film and it, there's a moment where it goes from 10, nine, and then it kicks into IMAX vision around about eight. And that was the moment when I went, okay, this is it. I'm back. I'm back in a movie. I'm back in a, in a cinema. Drink it in, drink it deep. The movie you're about to see will not be a disappointment. You will understand everything that happens. And uh, <laughs> most of my prediction came true. So that's probably my favorite moment of the year. Just mm. that, that moment of, of expectation and feeling that I was home again. Uh, just before seeing Tenet. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also Liverpool in the title. Oh my God, there it is. <laughs> um, my, I had the same experience going back to the first film after full lockdown, which was actually American Pickle a few days before Tenet for me. And even American Pickle, which is not a huge anticipated Chris Nolan movie, it was just so delightful to see it in the cinema. And it is a, a really sweet little movie. Uh, but yeah, I had the same thing again with Tenet. I had the same thing recently going back to the cinema after a long absence with Wonder Woman 84. Um, which I was lucky enough to see before Tier 4 kicked in. But moment of the year, just in film terms, out of the films out this year, I mean, the door opening in Parasite is up there. But the one that I think is just extraordinary, I've never seen anything like it before, is in um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. And it's the moment in the middle of the film where Mr. Rogers asks not just Matthew Reese's character, but all of us, to take a moment of silence. I've just never seen anything like it. And it really, really got to me. And I was basically tearing up in the cinema and I don't think I was alone for that. And it's, I think it's an extraordinary thing to put in your movie. It was something that I think the, not just the the sort of studio, but the actors involved in the scene were a bit like, I mean, I don't know if this is going to work. This seems crazy. Um, And, uh, and and it just works brilliantly. I think it's incredible. I'm with you guys on the on the Tenet front. Like I didn't particularly love Tenet. By the end, it had left me a bit cold on on first viewing. But as you go into it, it starts with a massive thunderous action sequence that, again, seeing it at a press screening in the IMAX was so overwhelming. It was so exciting. You could feel the base of that um, Ludwig Göransson score like rumbling in your chest. And after that, for, was probably for me the longest stretch that I'd gone without going to the cinema in. I don't know, like 15 years or something. It was crazy. Mm. I was so ready for it at that point. Um, And in fact, I did enjoy Tenet more after a second screening. And my second viewing of that uh, was in the summer when things opened up a bit more. I went with my mum and dad to a drive-in in a a car park in Newark, which doesn't sound like a lovely memory, but it honestly really was. Like we sat in the car all together and it was just... um, 
it was really well projected actually it was like a genuinely great cinema experience just i don't know i'd never done a drive-in before i think it's nice that we found different ways of seeing films this year and having that drive home talking about the film and like my parents understood it way more than me so i felt ashamed at that point but um that whole experience was really lovely um i mean in terms of other things helen mentioned wonder woman there is a i'm not going to say what it is but there is a specific point towards the end of wonder woman that really really got me that was just like heart and soul and heroism and what that whole film was leading up to that moment was just spectacle and emotion and all the things that i really liked about that film Mm. the whole experience of watching host at home because i'd heard (laughs) a lot of good things about host and uh i sat down with my partner who enjoys scary films until she's watching them and then wants them to stop and i was like i've heard there's this really good like zoom horror thing it's it's like less than an hour long we'll stick it on she was like oh yeah that sounds good laughed the whole way through the first 15 minutes because it's really funny as well and then when shit got real uh, we had to get up and turn the light on <laughs> and then we didn't talk about the film afterwards that was one where it was like i was inside going that was so much fun that was amazing that was full of so many incredible ideas and she was like that was really horrible why did we watch it <laughs> so i really enjoyed that sadistically um the, w- the one last one i want to mention is the horror film that i did see in the cinema this year the Invisible Man, the restaurant mm. scene in The Invisible yes. Man. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, the opening sequence of that is incredible as well. Like you could, it was almost like a quiet place again. Like people weren't breathing. People were holding their breath for that whole sort of 15 minute opening sequence. But the scene in the restaurant, you felt everybody gasp. You felt everybody go, oh my God. And I'm not going to say what happens in that moment because if you haven't seen it, like you really need to get caught up. But that is, um, was just an incredible, oh man, you could just feel Lee Winnell sort of shaking you in that moment, being like, ah. Yeah. So I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say that actually, Ben, that's a, that's a great shout. Uh, I also loved the moment in Extraction, which is the Russo Brothers yes. produced. Sam Hargrave directed Chris Hemsworth starring action movie on Netflix, where Chris Hemsworth playing a guy called Tyler Rake kills some dudes with a rake. <laughs> and that I, I absolutely love. And also the bit in Hoobie Halloween, where <sighs> Hoobie learns the true meaning of Halloween. I thought that was also a fantastic moment. Uh, Can I do one more just while we're on the Adam Sandler front? Because I've just remembered like the the opening of Uncut Gems. I, I'm struggling to think of anything more audacious that I've seen. I think I technically saw it in 2019. But in terms of 2020 movies, the opening with the stone and it has that, it almost starts kind of like The Exorcist and it has this like really like unsettling mythical vibe. And then you have the really, really trippy opening sequence traveling through the gem. And then suddenly you're coming out of Adam Sandler's asshole in a colonoscopy. <laughs> you're talking about like insane cinematic, like Brio, the audacity it feels like not for the first time either <laughs> insane it was um yeah i just remember feeling like so many emotions in that moment that i just couldn't believe what i was seeing that was yeah. great two adam sander films this year uncut gems and hubie halloween and both absolutely on a par in terms of quality oh my god so let's take another question here this one comes from at will chick asks this year has been an absolute clusterfuck well noticed but what film or film moment has left you most uplifted or made you laugh the hardest Helen O'Hara well I don't know if you noticed but Hamilton came out on Disney Plus and that gave me a real lift uh, around about June time when it felt like you know we'd been in 
uh, locked on forever. Uh, it felt incredibly boring and sad and nothing seemed to be getting better. And then ha- Hamilton came out and I was able to watch the original cast do Hamilton. So that was exciting again. and helpful. And again, oh, I, I don't know if I mentioned, yeah, I probably haven't mentioned, people don't it know hasn't come up. <laughs> that I saw it on Broadway with the original cast, but I did. And then I got to see it again. So it brought me back to happier times, like, you know, 2016, that would have been when mm-hmm. the world was not a shit show yet. Hmm. Well, it was a shit show. It was just less of a shit show than it is now. Well, yeah, but January 2016, we didn't know. We didn't know, man. You weren't there, man. You literally weren't there. Ben? (laughs) For me, it would be onwards. The physical comedy in Onward absolutely had me doubled up. I went to that screening just i don't know looking forward to seeing the new pixar film it had been a really busy day at work sometimes like chris was saying it gets to the point where you maybe take it for granted a little bit especially now but there are times when you are rushing to get to a screening in time you're sweating you're on the tube you're like there just before it starts and i remember just like absolutely creasing up at that film it in in the typical pixar sense there is a lot of really emotional stuff in that film but the thing that i felt at the end of it was just how much i'd laughed the whole time like that whole setup of the elf brothers trying to bring their dad back to life for a day but the spell goes wrong halfway through and he's just legs and they put um like a a stuffed hoodie on top of him and there's all this like really great comedy around the um the the hoodie sort of getting caught on things and it looking like somebody's there's that chase with the fairies and and the arm of the hoodies flying out the <laughs> ben, window. Are you on drugs? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it, and it looks like he's waving his arm out the window angrily at the fairies, and it kicks off this whole chase. And there's all sorts of things within. And this that. is a documentary. Yeah, exactly. It's a, wow. <laughs> it's a truer story than you'd think. Yeah, I, I Onward just cracked me up. I thought that was great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to say something that might surprise people. Uh, bad Boys for Life. For Life. <laughs> I am very much in the Bad Boys for Life camp. Uh, I went to see this. This may be the last really packed screen that I went to. So packed that I only managed to get a seat right at the last minute. And uh, I went in with zero expectations wasn't a fan of the first two movies it had been almost 20 years I think Bad Boys 2 is horrific and it had been almost 20 years since that and I just thought this feels like a cash grab this feels like Will Smith and Martin Lawrence just going for one last rodeo just for a big old payday and there's going to be no real merit to the movie and it I loved it guys I really did and I've seen it again since and so I don't feel like I was just riding the waves of a, of an actual cinema experience with a, with a packed audience loving everything, but there's a there's a line towards the end, which is still one of my favourite lines of the year, which is when Martin Lawrence, who's really funny in the film for reasons that I won't, I can't get into right now, but it turns out that Will Smith, I think it's, I think it's, I think we're far enough along now that I can roughly spoil the basic idea behind this joke, but that Will Smith's character Mike Lowry has uh, the the villain of the movie has had a, an affair with her in years gone by and they used to be a couple and she is into witchcraft, right? Okay, right, that's the setup. So he explains all this to Marcus, played by Martin Lawrence, who replies with the immortal line, Mike, you fucked a married witch. And for some reason, that just destroyed me, <laughs> that line. And it remains one of my favourite moments of the year. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> also, the bit in Hubie Halloween were oh god, 
Hubie is constantly surprised by people leaping out of them and he reacts with just hilarious versatility. It's slightly different every time. You you had to think for a few seconds there of what jokes were in Hubie Halloween. Yeah. And the one you came up with was people jumping out you? at Adam Sandler. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Hubie Halloween is wall-to-wall jokes, my friend. I just feel like proportionately we're mentioning Hubie Halloween more than it maybe deserves in a review of the year special. Like I, That's just my opinion, you know? You feel that. I feel I mention it less than it deserves uh-huh. in a review of the year Hubie Halloween special. Wow. Uh, Terry, what moment uplifted you? So you know that I'm not one for being uplifted often. In that, I enjoy my uh, my sadness and my misery and my tragedy in film. Um, but there were two <laughs> moments for me that stood out. One of them was Wonder Woman 1984, which um, I loved and was so impossibly moved by, which I think was partly uh, it was one of the few films I'd seen in, in at that period of time in the cinema. We saw it on the massive IMAX. Um, it was so moving and full of heart. Um, Patty Jenkins does heart and sincerity uh, like very few other filmmakers, especially working in that genre. And there is a scene in particular, which may be the same scene Ben was referring to earlier, which was just sad, but beautiful and hopeful and optimistic and righteous all in the same um, moment. And then the other one I wanted to talk about was Lover's Rock, Mm. which was obviously one of the five incredible films um, in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series, um, Mm -hmm. which were his love letters to black resilience and the black experience, the black immigrant experience in the UK from the kind of 60s to the 80s. And they were all tonally very different. Some spoke more to um, challenges and discrimination and racism. And Lover's Rock was something entirely different. It was just set in this house party in 1980s West London. And there's one kind of three or four minute scene to Silly Games on the dance floor, Mm. which is as a piece of, you know, three to four minute filmmaking, I'm hard pushed to think of a more rousing, joyful, heartfelt moment in film this year. Can I mention one more, which I forgot, which is Wolfwalkers? Yes. So this is the um, latest film from Cartoon Saloon, the Irish animation house, which I think has a pretty much 100% record today of being Oscar nominated for its feature releases. It's an astonishing, astonishing achievement. And um, their latest one, Wolf Walkers, is gorgeous. And it's sort of about uh, colonialism, British colonial, British rule of Ireland, um, trying to remake the land in their own image, trying to kind of crush the native culture and in particular the native uh, nature and kill all the wolves, basically. So, uh, which is a problem when our heroine, who is English, gets um, well, essentially, kind of becomes a wolf walker, which is not not technically a werewolf, but it's not not a werewolf either. And the scenes of her running with the wolves um, for the first time are just joyous and beautiful and and ma- mm. literally magical. And uh, yeah, their, their their animation style is extraordinary. They're kind of mm. single handedly flying the flag for two D animation. Um, in this part of the world and it's astonishing so, yeah. yeah those scenes too we had them on the podcast as well they're they're great mm. crack as we say back oh, home they are now. 
they are they are to be sure to be sure uh, a couple more a couple more for me uh, because I, I like talking about things that are uplifting it's quite fun uh, Ben's already mentioned it but Vampires vs. Bronx is a ton of fun and don't be put off by the title uh, do go and check it out on Netflix uh, it's about 90 minutes long and that's another trend that I absolutely love this year and I don't think it had anything to do with the pandemic but it just felt to me that most films that I really loved this year were 90 minutes and under and I cannot tell you what a godsend <laughs> that is. I'm all for, you know, sitting down and strapping myself in for a big old behemoth of a movie, something with a two hour plus running time. And I hope to get that when we're back in cinemas next year. But when I'm sitting in this vaguely uncomfortable temporary office chair at my office at home and I've got tons of work to do, a 90 minute movie where you're in and you're out again. Yes, please. Thanks very much indeed. I thought of one more. Sorry, I keep oh, doing yeah. this. Okay, no, Rocks. Good. Rocks. Sarah Gavron's film Rocks is yes. absolutely chock full of, I mean, there's tragedy and heartbreak and, and incredibly tough stuff in it, but mm-hmm. the sheer resilience of the characters and their joy, their teenage girls for the most part, their joy and their um, toughness and, um, and capacity for life is... Mm-hmm unbelievable and it is absolutely wonderful to watch and I think it gives you a real lift so I watched I did see that in cinemas before the pandemic I was very lucky because I think it was just about to come out uh, so I'd, I had seen it and then I watched it again at home and both times I was just moved to tears and laughter and everything else I think it's an extraordinary film and it is really uplifting despite it being about a, a children basically being made homeless and destitute <laughs> it's there they are so tough and they are so resourceful that you you not only root for them but but find yourself almost encouraged by them because if they can survive what the heck is wrong with the rest of us you know uh, I'm just going to mention a couple real quick real quick was really charmed by Enola Holmes mm-hmm. which really surprised me uh, and there's a a great moment as well in The Lovebirds which is a really funny film starring Kamel Anjiani and Issa Rae which is on Netflix and there's a moment in that it's just again it's a throwaway line but it really tickled me there's a there's a bit where they go to a party a dinner party and they've been in a scrape beforehand and Kamel's character has received a cut to his face and a guy sits down they're sitting at the dinner table and a guy notices this and he says to Kamel he says uh, you've got blood in your face and uh, Kamel replies with yeah it's a big disgrace which is a Queen reference. And for some reason, that just tickled me immensely. Uh, so I'm going to say The Lovebirds, which is a lot of fun. And again, 90 minutes long. The Lovebirds was really funny. Like, mm. I, I, that is one that it felt like it didn't get the love that it deserved because it was, again, about 90 minutes, completely undemanding, not like incredibly memorable, but I laughed solidly for 90 minutes, which in 2020 was a kind of miraculous thing. Um, it didn't feel like compared to some of the other uh, stuff that tends to take off a bit on Netflix, it didn't take off in the same way. And I don't quite know why, because it, it was genuinely good and Kamel mm. and, and Issa are, are great in it. Indeed. Let's take a question. Here's a, here's a more philosophical one from at Skent Taylor. Have you really missed big budget blockbusters? I love Marvel movies, but I think I've quite enjoyed the palate cleanser aspect of 2020. That, those are Skent Taylor's words, not necessarily mine. I am desperate for things to explode again. I was like, that was one of the great joys of watching Wonder Woman. That's what she said. Hey, um, just like, I I, look, I have loved, you're right, there have been so many great smaller movies and they've maybe had more column inches than they would normally. And and many have still had not had as many as they deserve, you know? So 
it's great that these films are getting more attention. It's great that there has been less noise from the blockbusters. It's great that we've been able to discover things like Saint Maud, like Rocks, like all of these, kind of, like Host. I think got much more attention than it would have in normal times. I mean, it got made, which is more than it would have well, had in true. normal times. <laughs> it literally wouldn't exist if it had not been for the pandemic. That's true. That's true. But that said, I like I. I like big, stupid movies. I like the Fast and the Furious movies. I'm sorry, Terry. I know what that says about me, but like, they're hilarious. <laughs> I like giant men punching each other for no reason. I like things exploding. I like people doing superhero landings. I like Captain America, especially if he has a beard and his sleeves rolled up. I just want <laughs> to watch big, stupid movies sometimes. And maybe that makes me a terrible suit. I'm okay with that as long as I also get explosions. So yes, I've I've desperately missed those movies. And while I appreciate this kind of moment to talk about other things, and I'm sure that's been really helpful for some filmmakers who have, you know, gotten more attention this way. I don't even think they would have wanted to get attention this way. I think they just wanted that on their own terms. So, you know, uh, yeah, just somebody explode something in a film safely, not in real life. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> we have to make it clear. The Emperor podcast does not negotiate with terrorists. We do not want you to blow anything up for real. Thanks. Yeah. And it, it isn't. Um, it isn't binary, right? I mm. think you know what. What we all love about movies, what Empire loves about movies specifically, is that you can watch St. Maud one night and you can watch big men blowing things up the second night. Like that is what we love is the the mixture of those things. And I think Helen's right. I I wrote a piece for the last issue of Empire in which I was talking about the fact that actually, you know, you take a step back and it's still been a great year for film and and films that I think would have done well anyway, but have had more exposure and just more visibility from um, the very nature of the fact that there haven't been big tentpole movies and, and big um, billion-dollar movies um, kind of eclipsing everything else, as it, as it can do at times, especially when it's an endgame level film or anything that's going to cross the billion-dollar mark. But I think those films would have kind of reached an audience anyway and I think mm. we want all of those things film is richest when it's you know from the very biggest boldest loudest explosions to the kind of smallest utterances of love at the other end I think that is what is so beautiful um about film and I don't think I needed a palate cleanser and I'm I'm kind of I've, I've missed it yes. this year much more than I than I actually thought I would why do I want to watch Top Gun Maverick on Christmas Eve, for fuck's sake! I don't know. Apart <laughs> from the fact that I, I want the noise and the clamour and the the kind of ridiculous, overblown emotion that that's that's what I want and that's what I really miss. I have to say. Yeah, it's noticeable that whenever we we were naming our films, we like to see on Christmas Eve. They were all big, dumb, exploding blockbusters. <laughs> hey, hey, Dune is very clever. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <Yes. laughs> Sorry. My apologies to the movie with the giant space worms. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, Endgame last year already felt like a pretty special thing, but I think it feels even more special after the year that we've had. I just think back to how joyous that was, that it was it was just this huge celebration of this thing that we all loved and that we did 10 podcasts about because we loved it so much. But it yeah. united it, having that thing. I think what we felt this year is because lots of films have been delayed. Some have made their way out into the world in other means. We haven't had those big unified experiences of like, everybody went to see this film or everybody saw this movie this year. It's been much more fractured. And one of the things that I love about what we do and about films is 
everybody having that experience and it being this national, international, cultural conversation. And it's felt like lots of smaller, more difficult conversations compared to last year when it was like, wasn't it cool when Cap picked up Mjolnir and then he smacked Thanos in the face with it? I've missed that sort of outpouring. I think as well at the moment, I've, I've mentioned when we've been doing the uh, Mandalorian pods, I have loved The Mandalorian this year. I've loved doing those podcasts because it's just a lovely chance to talk about Star Wars for an hour a week. Mm. At the same time, I, I've felt so much over the last couple of weeks that that real hankering for a Christmas Star Wars in the cinema that has been one of the most special things for me over the last five years. Like, I feel really nostalgic for 2015, for The Force Awakens, like, and for The Last Jedi. And I, I really like The Rise of Skywalker. I saw that in James the James isn't cinema. here. This is a safe space, Ben. <laughs> it's a safe good. place. Thank you. So, like, I saw that in the press screening. And then I went on opening night with my best friend. And then over Christmas, I went again with my mum and dad. And you fricked yourself silly. I, I did. Hey, um, but having those big experiences that get everybody together and that I oh I miss that so much. Yeah. So when this comment, when this question came through, have, have have you really missed it? I was like, yes, yes, I yes. have. Next question. Intensely, <laughs> intensely. And whenever we've discussed this, obviously, you know, what with Warner Brothers, we discussed it in a regular pod. Whenever Warner Brothers dropped that bombshell and moved a lot of their their entire 2021 slate to streaming, we had a big long conversation about this on the on the podcast and all the way through from the the minute the pandemic really took hold and from the minute that things started moving back not just a, a few months but like a year and change when bond moved back a year when fast nine moved into 2021 almost immediately it just went right we're moving to 2021 whenever that happened people started already floating the possibility that cinema might not come back and yes a lot of cinemas will close i think as, as a result of this but i think you only have to cast your minds back a year and a half to the biggest movie of all time becoming a huge cultural event and uh, people once again queuing up for movies screenings sold out in multiplexes and this sense of the the communal experience the cinema can be that's not going to go away i think yeah. uh, i think people are desperately craving that they desperately want it back i really 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 want it back uh big 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 time have i enjoyed this year yes there's been a lot of great films uh, a lot of films that have had lights shone on them that otherwise wouldn't have. All you have to do is look at our top 20 of the year to see that. But yeah, I'm like Ellen. I, yeah. I want something to explode big time or get smashed in the face. And I think it's interesting, like genuinely for me, watching Parasite, say, in a cinema with people, um, you know, there are moments in that that absolutely make audiences gasp like collective gasping in the same way that there happened with, you know, Cap and the Hammer. Now, obviously not quite as euphoric, but the, the same kind of thing. And that had a little bit of this kind of cultural moment of of shared discussion and, oh my God, have you seen? And, and that was kind of happening the same way. But all of these, even very big Netflix releases, you know, Amazon releases, uh, Disney Plus, even Hamilton on Disney Plus, didn't have the same kind of impact because not everybody is on the same page at the same time thinking, oh my God, we've got to see this immediately. And that's a special thing. And it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, a shared collective thing that's closer to a live concert or live theatre or football even than it is to, you know, just watching stuff on streaming. And I think that experience has a place in the world and I hope it, it survives, you know, and thrives mm -hmm. after this bloody awful year because I would Absolutely. be bereft otherwise. 
Uh, but I think Chris is Chris is right in that. I think there's there's one school of thought which is we've all got used to not going to the cinema and we've all got used to watching more things at home, even stuff that's meant to be seen large and it has huge amounts of scale. But I I'm of the other school of thought, which is I think it's made people value mm. the experience, the collective visceral experience of going to the cinema, of sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers and lovers and friends and having an experience all at the same time in a dark room. Think about when you go into a room, turn off your phone, the lights go down and you sit with a load of strangers in silence. If you think mm. about how weird that is, just in like cold terms <laughs> of what you do as a human being, it's a uniquely singular, immersive experience, the likes of which is not replicated anywhere else in any other form. Yeah. Um, and I, everybody I've spoken to, and obviously we work for a film magazine, but everybody else I've spoken to who has any kind of love for film has talked about missing that experience and mm. maybe not valuing that experience before and, and taking it a bit for granted. And I think mm. people may not feel safe still for a while, and that's perfectly okay. And cinemas mm -hmm. aren't going to be able to be full for a while until enough people have been vaccinated and that's also, you know, part of the reality. But I don't get a sense that that hunger and thirst is going anywhere. I think people are are so keen to get back in, so desperate to regain this important part of their life. And mm. I think we'll see a kind of a resurgence, if anything, of, of people being prepared to pay for that experience and to know and value the part it plays in their lives. And that's not to say they don't watch anything at home anymore. It means to say that they want the full experience. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And I have to say as well, the screens we have been to, just as soul-swelling as the experience was for me of seeing that countdown in IMAX before Tenet or before Wonder Woman 1984, not too recently, it's not the same for me. The experience of watching the movie isn't the same because my friends and my colleagues mm -hmm. who would normally be by my side are sometimes not even there or sometimes 10 feet away. During Wonder Woman 1984, ordinarily, Helen and I would have been sitting next to each other, high-fiving yep. at, at key moments. You know, it's one of the things I'm I'm most looking forward to about Fast 9. You know, those high-fives of, of, you know, at moments of just stupendous stupidity, <laughs> where we were prepared to give the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt and say, that was ironic, I think they meant that to be stupid. Yeah, they did. I'm not they entirely did. sure. They did. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they totally sure. did. They yeah. totally did. So let's high five each other because it was pretty awesome. And it's not the same. It's not the same when you know you're watching it and everyone is. is I tell you what, comedies have been fucking weird during the mm. pandemic. What was the movie? I can't even remember. There was a movie I saw recently. There was a comedy, and it was such a strange experience. And also, I've seen live comedy in in lockdown or in you know with all these social distancing measures in place, and it's been really tricky. Because I'm a very natural laugher, I'm a very generous laugher, and a very generous lover as well, if I may say. And, <laughs> of and the two often go hand in hand. Uh, I make love and my wife laughs. It's such a strange, never quite see the correlation there. But anyway, uh, and it's so weird because your laughter usually mingles with the laughter of other people and it becomes this infectious experience. And when you're socially distanced from people, your laughter just goes out into the air and it just dies. And so it's really difficult to have that, that experience. And so mm. roll on the vaccine, bracket mm. S, close bracket. Uh, as your lawyer, you should not roll on the vaccine. That might break the virus. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and my understanding is it's a suppository. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, God. Very much not, Chris. <laughs> oh, dear. That's a fuck scene. Uh, anyway, 
does that get the reaction? Honestly, <laughs> come on. I was like, did he just say that? I'm not even sure it works. Does it work? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, at not Marcus B, I've already answered this one to an extent, so I'm going to let you guys have a go at it. What was the film in 2020 that Team Empire went into with low expectations that turned out to be great? Hello, bad boys for life. <laughs> I'm going to turn over to bad Terry for life. You see, I was thinking about this and I can't think of anything that I had really low expectations for. I mean, I was I was in two minds about Tenet, if I'm being completely honest, just because I couldn't make head nor tail of the marketing or anything I was hearing beforehand. And then I went in <laughs> to see the film and I couldn't make head nor tail of, of No, I kind I liked I did like Tenet, but I I was in two minds about it before I went in. It was put in an impossible situation in terms of what people looked that's it to do, kind of, you know, everybody created this mythology where the entire future of cinemas was resting on Tenet and Christopher Nolan's shoulders. And I found it really hard to view the film kind of outside of the context of that because there was this whole discourse with a capital D happening to the side of this film, um, which I think was really unfair and and actually kind of didn't help the situation at all. So I, I came out, I think, um, pleasantly surprised by Tenet. A lot of people, I think, had the the opposite reaction um, and maybe we're a bit underwhelmed by it mm-hmm. but it was the first film I'd seen in a long time definitely the first film I'd seen on a screen of that size for a long time um, and that opening set piece alone sucked me in and by the time I had no fucking clue what was going on I was like well I'm in the pictures <laughs> and the stuff exploding and men running around so I'm quite happy thank you very much <laughs> still none the wiser I've seen it 47 times it's fine. We've it makes sense. We've got it. It's all okay. Spoiler special explains it all, guys. Except the bit halfway through where I go, what? What's happening? Anyway, yes, Helen. I I was kind of a bit every day is Christmas Eve about most of this year, so I was I was pretty much mm. excited about everything in advance, um, and so all that was to be played for was like me being vastly disappointed. I'll be honest, I disagree with Terry a bit. I quite enjoyed Borat, possibly because I didn't expect it to say anything very. Uh, profound, and it said some silly things in an amusing fashion. So I did. So that one I had zero expectations of because I'm not that big a fan of his, and I was at least amused. So that was good. And Trial of the Chicago Seven, I didn't know what to expect. Now, but I was, I was pretty, I was pretty hyped for that in advance. I can't even claim that it was a massive <laughs> surprise. I mean, it was a Sorkin. But then I didn't love. You know, you know me. I didn't love Molly's Games. So like, it could have gone the same way, and I could have been. Uh, I think you gave it three stars, Helen, which is, is my understanding is a recommendation. Yeah, but yeah. I didn't like love it like some people love it. So you know, he I doesn't love that. it. He's just he's just gaslighting you, me. isn't he? Yeah, unbelievable. I don't think I went into anything with particularly low expectations this year, but um, I've mentioned it before. But the Vast of Night I watched with kind of no expectations. I'd heard people say this is good and you should watch it. Uh, to be honest, I don't think the the posters and the artwork stuff is particularly great for it. It makes it look a bit naff and a bit cheap. For the first like five or ten minutes of that film, it's it opens in a really ambitious way with an insane tracking shot. That mm. this is like a small independent film, but it feels on the one hand very small, but also like it could have cost so much money to make because it's so ambitious. And it took me like ten minutes or so to realize what that shot was doing and how this film was going to work. And once it clicked, it was kind of mind-blowing like you sort of Mm. ease in and out of all these different overlapping conversations but you're following this central conversation and this one character going walking into a basketball 
court is it basketball yeah basketball it's yeah. in mm-hmm. a big american mm-hmm. sport it's basketball walking around the basketball court interacting with a bunch of people you follow him out of the basketball court and then to the car park and as you're watching that shot unfold it the film is teaching you how to watch it and having gone in with no expectations and then suddenly being hit by the really impressive nature of what this shot was doing and then what the film beyond it was going to go and do the sort of disparity there was was huge for me the other one i'd like to mention which i didn't go in with low expectations because i was quite looking forward to it but i really liked the craft legacy i managed to see that before cinemas closed again it was my last thing uh, seeing in the cinema and i just thought it was a really likable film i thought it did a really good job of updating that concept it dealt very head-on with things in an unsubtle way but in a way certain topics about kind of toxic masculinity and stuff in a way that i hadn't seen many films deal with it very head-on in that way especially in terms of i like i like anything that takes something real and turns it into genre but in a kind of way that that still tracks that does justice to what the initial thing you were talking about is and i thought the craft legacy did that and where it ended up i was like i need people to see this film because it is very sequel bait at the end but i want that sequel that film got a bit of a kicking in some quarters and it's quite a messy film it's not a neat film but i thought it had a lot going for it and there was a lot about it that i really enjoyed actually on a similar similar line i would say the old guard pleasantly surprised me and again went in with zero expectations and i'm not saying it was the film of the year but i think it does have is explosions and you know people hitting things really hard so that was kind of by june that was really what i needed as well so i i very much enjoyed that probably more than it deserved that's the, that's the thing. I, I worry sometimes that because people are so starved of this stuff, that they can just serve as a plateful of poo and we'll go, hmm, yes, Michelin star. <laughs> I don't think it's bad by any means. I just think, you know, I would I probably have... No, I, I, I think <laughs> I probably would have picked up on some of the kind of more familiar story elements more yeah. if I'd seen them in the past six months before it came out. Which yeah. I hadn't. But yeah, I think I think just naturally that we might be a bit more forgiving of. So what I'm saying mm. to studios, if you listen to this and you have a really terrible film, quickly rush it out. <laughs> January, just get it into cinemas and we will lap that shit up. Guaranteed five stars. Terry will agree with me. Terry is all in on this. This is now Empire Policy. Any oh film God. that comes out between January 15th and January 29th is guaranteed five stars. That's the, that's the Empire podcast. Seven Chris, stars. Chris, as your lawyer, <laughs> Terry, as your lawyer, no, none of this. Seven no. stars. Don't Dump your shit. Dump your shit. Five stars. Everything must go. Oh, boy. That's a classic January move anyway, isn't it? That's, that's the, <laughs> kind of the original January yeah. move. God, I wish we could dump COVID in January. Am I right? Am I right? High five, everybody. No? Okay. Can't do high fives anymore. Uh, I know I answered this with Bad Boys for Life, but I really, really was pleasantly surprised by The King of Staten Island, Judd Apatow's movie with Pete Davidson. And I suspect I'm still the only person in this room who's seen it. Um, I've seen it. But you've seen it? Oh, good. Yeah, I good. saw it for good. the week of release. Oh, that's good. Did we do a spoiler special on it? No, it's just me talking to Judd <laughs> Apatow. Yeah. And uh, because of my... Is hatred a word? A dislike of Pete Davidson that I'd cultivated over many, many years. I thought this movie was going to be absolute bilge and it really turned me around on him and makes me think that there is actually a, a real brain and a real artist perhaps uh, under that exterior it's really really good film guys and uh, on the other on the other end of the scale a movie came out the same month back in June was Eurovision Song Contest The Story of Fire Saga which I went into with loads of high hopes 
Will Ferrell, Rachel McAdams, the director of Wedding Crashers, David Dobkin. Funny songs. It's bound to be a winner, right? Nope. One of the worst films of the year. Came very, very close to getting the old one-star treatment from me. That film, Chris. Yes. Is funnier than Borat. <laughs> I, I'm going to disagree with you there. On that one. <laughs> I, am, I am entirely correct. Oh. I watched this on my mat leave and I turned to my boyfriend and I said what's going on? I think this is um, funny. And he was like, yeah, I think it is. Imagine they'd cut half an hour out and put some jokes in. Charming, utterly charming and warm. Weren't you swept away? I I hate to agree with Chris. You know I hate to agree with Chris, but I have to agree with Chris. That really upsets me. The funniest film of June was Artemis Fowl, but perhaps not intentionally, I have to say. But actually, the thing about Bora, I wasn't a big fan of the sequel, but the the last five minutes, the sort of twist at the end, which I won't give away because I think it's just a little bit too close to the release. There's a really funny twist sequence at the end, which I thought worked Mm. pretty well. Otherwise, I thought it was, and I know I realised that this is the pot calling the kettle black, uh, I thought it was a bit crass. And a bit juvenile and a bit puerile. And, uh, Sorry. Yes. and uh, that's my territory, guys. Back off, Borat. Couldn't agree more. At B. Hurling Shaw, what are the best film scores slash soundtracks of the year? Mandalorian for a start. Well, the Mando score. Uh, in fact, Helen, do you want to wax lyrical about that? Because I've got another one to, to go. So you, you go for that. I think Ludwig Goranson has been doing extraordinary work for the past several years. Um, and which is great because, you know, TV used to be where composers went to die. And that's what sort of launched him into all of you know, Black Panther and all of this. But I think his work for the Mandalorian has been extraordinary. And you saw that particularly, but there's particular bits where he incorporates sections of the Star Wars theme and manages to kind of not make you wish for more John Williams, which is, it's hard for me to think of better praise than that. You know, usually if you hear a tiny bit of John Williams and then it goes into another composer's work, I'm a bit like, yes, but can we not get the first guy back? And in this case, I was like, I was intrigued, I was entertained and I wanted to hear more of Granson as well, which is Mm -hmm. pretty much extraordinary. I love him. It's wild, isn't it? Because we've had... John Williams has scored all the the, the big nine, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then outside that, we've had John Powell and Michael Cicchino yeah. do scores for Star Wars movies and none of them. And those are really talented guys. I Great think Michael Cicchino might be one of the best around. Got nowhere near the brilliance of John Williams. Ludwig Granson comes in with his recorders and his, you know, little electronic box of tricks. And, you know, he's willing to embrace influences from everybody. So, you know, as Ben said, there's pretty much a bit of dubstep on this week's episode. There's some some metal guitars thrown in every now and again. There's a little bit of noodling acoustic guitar. There's lots of Western influences. There's lots of influences from all over the shop. And it's just, it absolutely works. But it's the theme. The main theme is an earworm like none yeah. other this year for me. And sometimes I just find myself singing it and it's, because it has it has different layers and it builds and then it drops down again and then it builds again and it's just a glorious glorious piece of work uh, and in a year when I don't think I haven't really exposed myself to that many uh, film scores. <laughs> thank God you uh, completed just, that sentence. Thank God I finished that <laughs> sentence. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's just tremendous. It's the, it's my earworm of the year. On the Mando front, um, the issue out now has uh, The Mandalorian hey. Season 2 on the cover, and I wrote the opening piece for that feature. And while I wrote it, I found um, a video on YouTube that is uh, one hour of the Mandalorian theme tune on a loop. <laughs> and I was listening to that as I was writing it, which was a great accompaniment. And you don't get sick of it. That's the no. incredible thing. It builds and then it kind of 
tempers back down again when the woo 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 comes back in. But the Oh, and it's triumphant, but it's also mysterious and brooding and heroic, and it's got so many strings to its bow. And one of the great things about it is, you know, every episode, when every episode ends, it plays the theme in full. And I just, you know, that's sacrosanct. Mm-hmm. I now know who voices the Mandalorian in Spain and Italy and all around the world because I wait right until the end of the credits because you have to hear every single bar of that theme. So if if it's not a movie and it's a score rather than a soundtrack, um, I'm going to go for a film that had the most amazing soundtrack and is a film that absolutely blew me away. And again, I don't think enough people saw it. Who here has seen Waves? Mm. No, the actually, Trey Evans yeah. Schultz film. It's on, if you've got Sky or Now TV, I think it's on there at the moment. Holy crap. I would say everybody go and watch it right now. Although the caveat to that is that it is incredibly emotionally intense. So if you don't feel up for that right now, maybe wait until you've got the sort of emotional fortitude to deal with it because, oh, it, but as a film, it goes to, it has the most vibrant joyousness to it and also the deepest darkest depths it's really balanced in that way into the script trey edward schultz wrote all the songs um that are on the film he wrote those into the um into the screenplay they're like such an integral part of the film the one that really stands out is tame apart tame impala be above it uh, if you know the album lonerism it's the opening track on lonerism and it has this sort of galloping refrain this really anxiety inducing kind of repeated vocal of i gotta be above it i gotta be above it and he uses that as the sort of soundtrack to the character's mindset as the kind of tension and the pressure of everything that he's facing kind of boils over it is one of the most impressive films i've seen all year like the clarity and the sharpness and the vibrancy of the filmmaking and the performances the emotional weight of it and then the soundtrack is the thing that binds it all together like kendrick lamar backseat freestyle is in there it ends with alabama shakes sound and color which is just this kind of really peaceful exhale as you head into the second half of the film it has a very different feel and it ends on that note that is just gorgeous it is an incredible soundtrack of of great great songs from maybe the last five or so years uh maybe slightly longer than that and yeah i can't recommend that film highly enough if you're in a place that you feel like you can handle it because it's a lot but yeah waves holy shit hell of a film Uh, i wanted just to mention a couple of scores because the question was scores or soundtracks Uh. um so ben mentioned tenet um earlier ludwig goranson again um i mean Christopher Nolan and sign design is hardly news, but that from the beginning um, just had me completely gripped and anxious. Um, The two things that Nolan always makes me feel. Um, But actually, my favourite score of the year is um, for Shirley, um, which is um, Tamar Carley. Surely you can't be serious. What? It's been a really, really long year. Home stretch, Terry. Home stretch. <laughs> dark in a studio by myself in Camden. Anyway, so as I was saying, um, so I loved Shirley um, this year, which again I feel like is a film that didn't get quite as much love as I expected it to when I saw it. I loved it. The kind of oddness around this film, which is 
kind of part horror, part thriller, part domestic drama. Um, Elizabeth Moss, uh, I think, her absolute greatest. Mm -hmm. And you've got obsession and agoraphobia and and creative block and um, uh, this kind of weird sexual tension and, and domestic tension in there. And honestly, the heavy lifting done by the score in this, which is actually just some strings, a piano, and these weird kind of disembodied female vo- isolated voices, which makes the whole thing completely frenetic, um, completely weird, quite overbearing and, and quite kind of anxiety inducing at times, which seems to be the kind of thing that I look for in a score. I think this film without this score would have been a, a, a far poorer um, movie. I just mm. think it's exceptional. Um, and it's something that I've, I've kind of stuck with me um, ever since I saw it. Blimey. We should probably mention Parasite as well. The score for that by uh, was it Jael mm. Jung was yes. unbelievable. Absolutely astonishing. I think as well, Daniel Pemberton had a really good year. He did Enola Holmes and Trial of the Chicago 7 in the same month, um, at least in terms of release. Hope we didn't get them mixed up. <laughs> hey. uh, and Birds of Prey as well. Um, all of those had pretty banging scores, I thought. so. Banging indeed, Helen. Uh, we haven't mentioned, and we'll get into it because it's in our top 20, but 1917, mm. uh, which is... Strange, because maybe it's that because it's at the very beginning of the year, and I think it might have slipped a lot of people's minds as a 2020 film. In case you're listening to this in the states and you're going, "Hey, a lot of those movies came out last year, you jackass." Uh, well, I have to say that over here they didn't. There you go, mystery solved. So <laughs> there are now 2020 films for us. 1917 was great. It was that score by Thomas Newman was was absolutely fantastic. Oscar nominated, but lost out to Hildur Gottnadottir for a. Uh, uh, Joker and Joker. yeah but that was a really 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 good score right couple of last questions uh, this is a little self-aggrandizing we're going to stick two of them together but apologies it's been a long year allow us to aggrandize ourselves for a second Sam Clements of the 90 Minutes or Less podcast and of course the Holiday Season podcast also what has your favourite or what have your favourite Empire podcast moments of 2020 been and what was the Empire team's favourite Empire cover of the year Terry you are obviously the editor-in-chief you took a few months off for some mysterious reason that I can't quite pin down uh, <laughs> were you in prison I think you were in prison is, is my understanding yeah yeah I'm still tagged but I'm out I'm free <laughs> <laughs> just don't look at me from the ankle down <laughs> I mean that's a very small area yeah. to not look at yeah. uh, I know. So, okay. <laughs> don't judge me by my ankle yeah. uh, for you what was the favourite cover of the year so I've got a few really I was off as we know for, for six months and I think the work done um, when the entire cover plan went to shit um, was some of the greatest work Empire's ever done so you know a bit of tedious detail which is Empire is normally the covers are normally planned a year 18 months kind of in advance we always kind of know what's going on the cover and for the first time in Empire history due to um, all the cinemas closing and all the films falling out the slate as we discussed the covers kind of went up in flames really and I think the initial response we did after the pandemic hit and we went into lockdown the celebrate our cinemas issue where which saw the likes of James Cameron and Barry Jenkins um writing for Empire or being interviewed by Empire about the beauty of cinema um I think was really really powerful then there was the movie playlist um cover which was the great of Hollywood recommending watch lists 
And there was also, for me, the Chadwick Boseman mm. tribute cover, mm. which, you know, we, we've never done a kind of full cover tribute to anybody before. When Heath Ledger died, the subs cover was cleared, but the um, newsstand cover remained a film. I think it was Iron Man, if I remember rightly. This was the first time we'd ever cleared both covers and it was my first issue back after maternity leave. You know, I don't know about you guys, but you, but I'd never seen a response mm. like the response to Chadwick Boseman's death. It was overwhelming. Um, and I think it was partly his age. I think it was partly the shock. I think it was his sheer talent, what he produced in arguably a really short period of time. Mm -hmm. And the kind of response, we, we were bowled over by it, actually, and it felt like a, a no-brainer to take a moment to pause and to recognise what an incredible contribution he'd made. And I think we ended up with covers, the likes of which Empire have never run before, um, but felt entirely fitting at the moment. And then, quite frankly, this issue we're closing out on, that subs cover with, you know, baby odor on, vomiting all over himself, eating macarons. I mean, if there is no better, more pure way to end this hellscape of a year, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. that that's the hope we all need as this as this um year closes. It mm -hmm. it really is. Um so it's been it's been quite a year and I think we'll look back on the covers of Empire in twenty twenty and be kind of amazed by by what was managed to be produced in such a, a weird and dark and discombobulating time. In fact, Baby Yoda is my favorite cover of the year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty great. It, our, our subscribers cover from the first time we did The Mandalorian, where he's holding up a wanted poster of the Mando. Of the Mando? Why do I keep saying that? A wanted poster of Mando and by Sam Gilby. And it's just a, such a lovely, cheeky little thing. And I think in many, many ways, 2020 belongs to, can we say it now? Grogu. <gasps> Grogu. Grogu. Oh, every time he does that little squeak when he oh. hears his name. Oh, amazing. I think for so me, good. one of my favourite covers was was one of the most colourful of the year as well. I think that was something that we all looked for this mm. year, was vibrancy and colourfulness. And it was tied into other stuff that was going on as well. So it was our Wonder Woman cover mm. that was like all kinds of crazy shades of pink and yellow and like all that neon goodness. And it was in the sort of early part of the lockdown when the Dua Lipa album had come out, which if you've not listened to that Dua Lipa album so from this good. year, it's so, so good. And it's <laughs> all like 80s infused disco funk, but very kind of contemporary pop stuff. And I was listening to that album so much while we were doing all the rollout of the Wonder Woman issue. And it just all felt like it all tied together. And on the one hand, things were dark and scary. And on, on the other hand, things were colourful and catchy. And we had this really great, really striking Wonder Woman image. So that was one that definitely stood out for me for, for this year for the mag. Yeah, I love the Wonder Woman cover as well. Um, and the Dune cover, not to be a broken record, mm. but just the sheer chutzpah of having a giant worm on the cover, I thought was <laughs> incredibly impressive uh, for that subs cover. But I just love the sub subs covers generally. I just love that you know we have the freedom to do that, and we have you know our great art director Chris Lupton to do extraordinary things with them, and and great artists to do extraordinary work. And they're such a luxury. They're such a treat. They really are. 
They really, really are. What about the podcast, folks? Any moments stand out for you from this year? Our little live show when we were sort of mm. semi-back with a sort of socially distanced audience. It was just so nice to be in a room with more than one person. It was so lovely. And everybody was in such a good mood and it was so nice to see familiar faces at an incredibly safe distance. Um, it was even nice to see your face, Chris, and James's. Even James's. In, in terms of live shows, I'd forgotten that before all of this went to hell, we, we got Macquarie out in February. That was such an exciting moment. Wait, I that remember. was this year? That was yep. this year. That was February. Wow. That was like a month before lockdown that we had a packed house. There had been some news that had broken about Mission Impossible 7 during the week. And I remember Chris teeing up teeing up that news story as part of the discussion. Part I didn't of the know podcast. he was out there, Ben. <laughs> you didn't? It was just a coincidence. <laughs> you just said, I wonder if we've got someone who can tell us a bit more about Mission Impossible. And Chris McCrory happened to walk through the door? That's crazy. Well, I, was trying to, I heard like he was a bit like Candyman. If he says his name five times, he appears and starts talking for an hour. That's what, what I've heard. And apparently it's true. That was that was cool. That was very exciting. Especially as somebody who was like on the outside of, of that being organised and just got to sit on that table and be like, what the fuck? Uh, well, well, Chris McCrory's there talking mission and all the crazy things yeah. they've got lined up. That was that was really cool. I mean, otherwise, Aww. like I've said, it's just the Mando pods. I can't really pick a specific moment, but I've I've loved doing those podcasts and um, it just yeah to have like I said those communal experiences of us just getting together and talking about Star Wars for an hour and the conversation that we get back from people from the the subscribers who listen to those podcasts has been an amazing thing so yeah thanks to to all of you guys as well because that is so much a part of of the joy of those pods for me mm. wait Dublin was this year as well wasn't it Dublin, Dublin was this year another great podcast live wow yeah. I'll say as somebody who who isn't in every podcast and has done the fourth chair occasionally and especially when I was off on on maternity leave there was a weird comfort in hearing you three and by you three I mean Helen um Chris and James um let's take his name in vain and whoever was in the fourth chair including Ben there was something really comforting and lovely when things were at their most scary and most terrifying and we didn't really know what was going on we didn't know when we were all going to be together again and we didn't know when we were going to be back in cinemas there was something really lovely even as somebody who works for empire there was something very lovely being able to tune in every week and hear you guys and you provided i think that comfort for me and for loads of other people out there especially in those those early um mm. scary days um mm. even you chris Oh, thanks, Terry. <laughs> really means a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's been it's been such a strange year. Mm. Uh, if I can be permitted to uh, to talk about it for a second, it's, it was it was a really strange year. And whenever we decided to move into doing this remotely, and we explored all the possibilities, we we landed in Squadcast ultimately in terms of providing the best sound quality and the best interaction. Quite frankly, as well, we can talk over each other. Helen, speak. Say something now. Say something now. I will Helen. say something. And, and, yeah, and see, and Helen and I are speaking over each yeah, other, and absolutely. we're not doing that audio ducking thing. You get on Zoom, the dread Zoom, uh, which is great. And so we decided to go ahead with that. Uh, but I have to say, there was touch and go for a while because you know we weren't sure whether Hollywood was still going to go. We weren't sure where the industry over here was still going to go ahead. We weren't sure where we were with guests. Uh, you know, I think there actually we did have an episode where we didn't have a guest. I had to use an archive interview I hadn't run before, uh, right back at right back at the beginning, where we didn't have guests and uh, we had to rely on favors and friends of the pod and friends of the mag and all that sort of stuff. But gradually, people began to adjust. Gradually, the industry began to adjust, and uh, you know, 
if I'm allowed to be proud of the output we've put out this year, then I'm proud of the output we put out this year. I think it's it's been really interesting in terms of the guests. We we've shone a light on you know people like Eliza Hitman, and you know we've had big names like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and. Rosamund Pike, I'm just looking at the names here, Rosamund Pike and uh, Kamel Nanjiani, but we've also highlighted filmmakers and actors that we've really, really wanted to to highlight. Uh, I just want to say thank you to the, the listeners because you've kept us going, not least by listening to the podcast in fast, unparalleled quantities, but also just by supporting us constantly and giving us lovely feedback and Whenever I get someone saying to me that the podcast means a lot to them and has helped them keep going in the podcast it, and has helped them keep them going in the uh, pandemic, it, it really makes the whole thing worthwhile. Right, that's enough sincerity. Uh, two last questions. At Jane, not Victoria, there have been so many great films released in streaming platforms and VOD only this year. Which one above all others do you wish you'd seen on a big screen? Well, Extraction, although that was never headed to the big screen, I think would have been fun there. Um, Mulan is the most obvious one, I think. Uh, it, it's got the big sweeping sort of landscapes that, that would have been really, really good to see on the big screen. Um, mm-hmm. And I should say that I saw Soul at the London Film Festival in a cinema, and therefore that is not being counted in my assessment. Otherwise, <laughs> Soul. <laughs> I wish I'd have seen The Platform, which mm. kind of like Helen <laughs> was never meant to be at the cinema. But if there was one film, and this was a Netflix film, if everyone remembers, it's the kind of Spanish social realist sci-fi horror thriller, crazy bonkers brilliantness um and i would have loved to have seen it up big and loud um just a remarkable film but was always destined uh, for netflix mm. for me i've mentioned it a couple of times now but the vast of nights i think would have just been really great <laughs> as like by the vast of night <laughs> apparently i am but that was something that i was watching it thinking like oh i i i wish do you know i wish i got to see the vast of night in a drive-in like the whole milieu of that film that would be an amazing thing to drive up and and see it that way uh, the other one would be his house the the horror film on netflix uh by remy weeks which is amazing it is so good and it is properly terrifying um Mm -hmm. i watched it on my own and it really freaks me out i think just seeing that again with an audience horror films with an audience on the big screen there's nothing like it and i think Mm -hmm. it would have been great to see it with other people really was a cracking year for horror this year um Mm -hmm. i think host is one of the films of the year for me but equally you could say that about the invisible man you could say that about saint maud you could say that about his house you could Mm -hmm. say that about relic uh, Vampires versus the Bronx I really loved as well I'm sure there are other ones that I'm overlooking also cracking year for horror I don't know was there something in the air that made people <laughs> <laughs> turn to scares who knows the film for me that I would love to have seen with an audience because I think it might have made me like it more I didn't like it particularly was Borat 2 because the experience of watching the first Borat with an audience um, was great and watching it on my own on my computer with my name on the screen wasn't quite the same the last question is uh, comes from two different people who asked roughly the same question. Jenna Morrison and film fan 1971. Hello, Matthew. Uh, given the lack of big blockbusters this year, which films do you think that would typically be overlooked during awards season could do well? And uh, film fan 1971 asked, I'll be very curious to hear the pods take on what the year might have looked like without COVID-19. So especially as it relates to awards season. So let's focus on that aspect of it. Do you think this will open the door to films that might not otherwise have received awards recognition. Yeah, I'm not sure really. For me, it's been it has been the 
the bigger films, the blockbusters that have been affected by this, and they often don't tend to get as much love when it comes to the Oscars anyway. I think it's quite hard to think of what the Oscars would have been in a normal year, because often that conversation it evolves through the festivals and through what happens in the later half of the year. And by that point, we were so deep into all of this anyway. Obviously, some festivals happened online, some happened in different ways, but also none of that stuff quite played out in the way that it normally would. So I think it's really hard to think of what the Oscars would have done differently in a year like 2020. But for me, it is it's it is your Black Widows and your Bonds and things that have been really affected by this that have made the whole year feel incredibly different. And those are the sorts of things that might not typically get the big sort of categories at the Oscars anyway. I think it's things like West Side Story, for example, which might have been expected to be an Oscar contender, or at least it was on some people's list, although it's Steven Spielberg and the Oscars tend to avoid mm. him unless he gives them literally no choice. So that kind of thing dropped back. And there, there have been a few films of that sort of level, studio pictures, reasonably big budget, that that kind of vacated the year. But yeah, the, the fact that the Oscars at least pivoted to allow streaming and you know kept things like you know Defy Bloods or Trial of the Chicago 7 potentially in the mix gives them something to award stuff to uh, because otherwise they would be facing a, a dire situation indeed. So at least for this year, there's none of the usual tedious Netflix versus cinema debates as regards the Oscars at least. Mm. That's got to be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think we will see a radically different kind of set of runners and riders just as as we say the the things that have really fallen out have been those those big blockbusters i still think we're going to have a really healthy award mm. season um you know peace for woman mank more rainy one night in miami um we've no madland no madland um i think those strong films still made their way into the world um mm-hmm. and so i think it'll still be a really strong year there was that whole kind of award season is going to be completely devalued and what's the point because none of the titles are going to be there of, of real quality and as usual it's utter bollocks um, <laughs> so I, I still think we're going to be in for a, for a good season I am fully agreed one of my favourite moments on the podcast this year was the discussion very early in the pandemic when we, we said what if it was a cut off point what if they stopped it now and they had to reward the films that were out in 2020 and you know Bad Boys for Life and Doolittle and things like that might be front runners uh, I still Still say Bad Boys for Life has been cruelly overlooked in the discussion right sure, now. Sure. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, genuinely, I'm hoping that someone remembers that Elizabeth Moss was phenomenal in the, in the Invisible Man and, you know, gets over that anti horror bias that the Oscars tend to have and at least nominates her for that. And I hope as well that they, uh, they make up for last year's oversight in not giving Adam Sandler an Oscar for Uncut Gems by finally giving him one for Hubie Halloween. No, Chris. Okay. So, very, very quickly now, uh, we're going to go through Empire's top 20 of the year. So, everybody who writes or designs or is, you know, just walking past the Empire Towers was asked to send in their top 10 of the year and they were assigned a points value. And then Nick put them into a spreadsheet and then lost a spreadsheet and then just made it up. And here is the final top 20. Now, Wonder Woman 1984 and Soul aren't on this, so the vote was taken before then, although I'm not sure that either of them would have cracked the top 20. I think just based on the general mm. consensus I'm sending, the census, the consensus, the consensing, the consensing uh, that I'm getting from everybody 
in the magazine. I think there are people who really love those movies and there are people who are actually quite anti them, which is interesting. Yeah, I, d- I don't know that they would have made them. And, and then, of course, it always, as ever, it, it depends on a certain number of us having seen these films as well. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure enough people would have seen them in time. So, yeah. So, number 20 is Rob Savage's Host, which is the homemade DIY the movie I was dreading most, if I'm completely honest with you, because I said it's in the podcast a few times that the, the last thing I wanted to see in the pandemic was something that resembled our lives, which have been largely conducted on computer screens and in Zoom meetings. And here was a horror film set entirely over Zoom in which uh, five women are attacked by an evil demon during the course of a Zoom call. And, you know, I think this is low, very low on the list. It should be a lot higher. For me, it's one of the films of the year. It's phenomenally good and really marks out Rob Savage as a directorial uh, voice to watch. Yeah, for me, I think this was my number three of the year just because it was such Ditto. an unexpected treat. And I think, like you were saying, right, that, that whole like pandemic horror is something that we were all kind of dreading. And so for Host to come out and make it like essential, I'm trying to think of other, of other films this year that by the end of it, I was like, I need to tell everybody I know you have to watch this film. And I felt that with Host in a huge way. And it feels like mm-hmm. such a complete meal of a film in 55 minutes. It feels like a full-on feature film, which it is. is That mm-hmm. is what it's presented at as. But the amount that it gets in there, the 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 sort of... And the amount of ideas it packs in. We when we did the um the spoiler special for it, like the way that they orchestrate some of those scares are things that I've genuinely never seen before. The way they're so tailored to the experience of using Zoom and the possibilities that that gives you, oh, is genius. It's and I cannot wait. Cause those guys are making another film at the moment for Blumhouse. That they're, they're like in the middle of production now. I have no idea what that film is, and I will be watching it day one wherever that is available. I I can't wait. I'm not really comfortable discussing host with Terry sitting there on her own in the dark. So we should <laughs> move on. Uh, Terry's not on her own. Helen, what are you talking about? There's <laughs> that that figure standing behind her. Some dangly legs. <laughs> Just uh, some behind dangly Terry's legs. right shoulder. <laughs> Dangling legs. There's a there's a t- terrifying bald apparition behind you, Terry. Oh no, it's James. He's just popped in for a few seconds. <laughs> James is going to Mandalorian explain to you for for an hour, which is more terrifying than anything in host. Uh, at number nineteen, again a bit low for me is uh, Spike Lee's To Five Bloods. Mm. Uh, and this was um, it's a much longer film than Host, but it's uh, justified. <laughs> well, everything's by the- a much longer yeah. film. Than host. <laughs> Uh, but this is justified by the performances, I think. You know, Delroy Lindo has always been good. Like, you, you never, he's one of those guys, he's a 27% or anything he turns up in, he makes 27% better. But in this, given dramatic meat in a really great lead role and not always a sympathetic one, he just. Mm storms this film. It's extraordinary. And I mean, Chadwick Boseman is no slouch in this film. He's also great, but Delroy Lindo's on another level here. And I just thought that was that was phenomenal. And, you know, some clever stuff, you know, from Spike Lee, the fact that he's going into this film, having his, you know, elderly cast essentially perform their younger selves without anything in the way of prosthetics or particularly or makeup, just, you know. No, Scorsese did the same with The Irishman. <laughs> cheeky twinkle, cheeky twinkle. Hey. Look to camera, look to camera. But yeah, I just I just thought it was incredibly effective in terms of, you know, yeah. examining your life as an older man and kind of looking back on your youth and and considering how things have gone. I thought it was it had a real streak of nostalgia in it. Not not nostalgia, that's that's too cheap a word, but just memory and regret and age and time. I thought it was 
yeah, really good. I think it just reminds you that still how singular and resonant a voice does Spike Lee have as mm. a filmmaker and how, you know, he what he makes is so uniquely him and he's just I just still think he's doing work unlike anybody else. Mm. And this film mm. really reminded you of that. Yeah. I, I haven't been back to watch it since it came out um, because I think there's something sort of tragic and resonant about how Chadwick appears in that film, that mm. he is the one of them that doesn't get to grow old. The fact that he is sort of um, their their hero in every sense, that he is, whenever you see him, he's doused in sort of heavenly light and that he's there as this sort of figure of um, of someone who was lost. I think it's got a really tragic extra resonance since the film came out that I haven't gone back to it yet. And I think it will be a lot to, to kind of go back and see that yeah. performance and see that character that now just has a whole extra level of, um, of mm. meaning to it. Number 18 is Onward, Pixar's Onward. Ben, I know you love this one. Everyone else also thought it was nice. <laughs> I had such a fun time with it. It's so fun. The, right. It's, it's really fun all the way through, but it has one of those great endings that gives you what you need rather than what you want. And the emotional intelligence of that ending, I think, is incredible. And I can't wait to see how it sort of comes out in the shuffle of, of Pixar rankings and things through the years, because I think it's got a lot going for it. 17 is Tenet. Which, I don't think this is pulling back the curtain too much, Terry only just realised today is tenant spelled backwards. <laughs> yes, yes, and I know how that makes it sound, and I know I'm the editor-in-chief of Empire, but who knew that tenant spelled backwards is tenant? I mean, what the fuck? I think, honestly, Terry, all of us, have you heard about the Sator Square yet? Yeah. Oh, we'll yeah, you should look afterwards. up the Sator Square. Yeah, it's amazing. There are oh, five tenant palindromes in one. It's a whole thing. Yeah, it's a whole thing. I, um... I liked this, I think, more than most people because I decided fairly early on on my first viewing that it was nonsense and I shouldn't worry about following the plot. And I think simply relaxing into it helped me follow the plot. And mm. I now think I understand about 90% of it, which I think I, I believe is above normal. So, yeah. It's I, Chris Nolan. <laughs> I very much doubt that. So I, but I, yeah, I, I just enjoyed the ride of it. I enjoyed the silly, you know, globe trotting in fabulous suits aspect of it, and and tried to ignore the fact that all the women characters are, mm. you know, curtailed at best. So yeah, fun. I will just say, if if we'd have said at the start of twenty twenty, Tenet was going to be at number seventeen, I think we'd have all found that really hard to believe mm -hmm. i think it, it does if you take a moment to think of of a christopher nolan film kind mm. of just making it into empire's top 20 of 2020 i think it's mm. quite surprising but i th I think this film was quite divisive mm. um and people either kind of quite liked it or really didn't get it um and i think that was really reflected in where it came in came mm. in the eventual final list i have a tiny point to make which is that Kenneth Branagh's balls in the neck speech is one of the unexpected weird delights of 2020. It was cut from Artemis Fowl. They repurposed it for, <laughs> <laughs> for Tenet. Uh, 16, speaking of palindromic names, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Oh, I just love this. I absolutely adore it. It's, uh, it's a, a tribute to a life well lived. It's uh, a plea for all of us to kind of take a moment and try to be better people. Um, and it's a really interesting film in that the good guy is the antagonist. The best guy is the antagonist. Tom Hanks is the antagonist. And uh, he's basically trying to 
force our hero, question mark, Matthew Reese to become a better man. And that's an unusual setup, but I think it played beautifully. Hot Matthew Reese fact, he was the last ever killer on Columbo. Thanks. True story. Number 15, I'm thinking of ending things. But before that, we should probably get through the rest of 15. Oh, it's, uh, that's the name of the film. Charlie Kaufman's <laughs> film, I'm thinking of ending things. Yep, I, I feel much the same way. 14. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't I, for this. I too didn't like it. I No, no. I'm thinking of ending things is literally something I was thinking all the way through this movie. Um, not in a ending my life kind of way, but just I'm thinking of ending this movie kind of way. Uh, I wasn't thinking that with Hamilton, which came in at number 14. Oh. Now, I will say this. I didn't put Hamilton in my top 10 of the year, even though it was a great experience, because, and this is a little debate we can have right here now, it's in the top 20 films of the year. I don't think it's a film. I mean, look, Nick put it on the list of ones we were allowed to vote for, so I voted for it. I have no regrets. If Nick put his head in the fire, would you do the same? (laughs) We did. I'm trying to remember, as the person who decided with Nick that this was definitely a film and allowed on the list, I'm trying really hard to remember why we decided it was a film. And I think it came down to, it's a film. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no arguing with that. (laughs) It it has credits and it's on Disney Plus as a film. Oh, do you know what it was? Okay. I said, I said, if David Byrne's American Utopia was considered a film, and if yes. uh, Stop Making Sense was considered a film, then I didn't see how we could say Hamilton wasn't a film. Fair enough. Still, I'm still not falling for it, uh, <laughs> and I loved it. I think it's you know, I'm a Hamilton stan. I'm a Stanilton. I hope one day there will be a Hamilton film. Mm. But um, yeah, I think I don't know. Is filming something enough to make something a film? Because if so, I would like to resubmit my top ten and. Uh, Include you Liverpool know what I'm winning say. the show. Liverpool yeah. winning the league, yeah. lifting the trophy in Anfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Beautiful stuff. Uh, anyway, 14 Hamilton is great. And if I did vote for it, it would be probably higher. 13, again, a bit low. And I think this might be down to what I said earlier on. I think people have kind of just forgotten a little bit that 1917 was this year. I get it. This year has been a long fucking year. 1917 was ages ago. 103 years by my reckoning. <laughs> So, you know, would you remember this one? But it's great. 103, 113, Chris. Maths. 113. What? What? It's, wait, it's no 2020. Ben. No, Ben. What? Yeah. No, Ben. Oh, my God. No, Ben. No. What year is this? Oh, oh bad, Ben. Who's the president? Sorry, you're going to have to tell me that again. Sorry, who's the president? Yeah. <laughs> what? I will say um, this wasn't in my top 10, and that's because I felt genuinely um, that it was a remarkable achievement in filmmaking, but that some of the heart and some of the kind of narrative um, was uh, sacrificed mm-hmm. at the altar of um, uh, great technology. Technical filmmaking. But what technical filmmaking? My word. One one shot composed of like yeah. loads of other shots. <laughs> yeah. But still. No, I think it's technically extraordinary and uh, music as well was, was phenomenal. But I just, I didn't feel it in my bones the way I do with the very best war movies. Okay, fair enough. Did you feel Queen and Slim in your bones? Because that came in at number 12. This was in my top 10. I... Just And this is another one I think it's hard to remember that this is actually 2020. I thought yep. Jodie Turner-Smith is electric. Daniel Kaluuya is obviously, you know, just 
an extraordinary actor. I think when it came out, we never knew the resonance it would take this year, especially. Um, but I think just as a, a kind of a piece that really spoke to the daily reality of, of being African-American and the kind of brutality and the constant discrimination, but also finding mm. the absolute... I, I'm not... I don't know if beauty is the right word, but just, I mean, that some of the shots in this movie are, are I think, among some of the most beautiful um, individual shots in film this year. Just mm. a luscious, luscious film um, with just th that coupling. I think they're both electric, especially together. Yeah. Yeah, great film. Great film. Looks fantastic as well. Uh, number 11, Mangrove. And again, this might spark a little debate about, you know, is a film that debuts on TV a film? Is Host a film that's 56 minutes long, technically a feature film? Yes. Uh, I say yes. <laughs> and uh, we had this discussion on the podcast. This is why we reviewed every single one of the Small Axe uh, movies, films, on the Empire podcast, because we considered them to be films. And of course, they're getting a theatrical mm -hmm. release outside this country where they screened in the BBC. But this is the first of them, and it's the longest of them, and it's the one that I think is the most conventionally cinematic yeah the, the, i think this film is so immersive like right from the mm -hmm. opening minutes it draws you into this neighborhood into this life into the daily reality of of these um sort of racist raids by the police i think it was really important um that this year with everything that happened in the summer with with george floyd and with the black lives matter protests so much of that was centered as being american stories and to see a very specific distinct example of like no this is also something that has been historical and ongoing in the uk as well to have that very specific sort of counterpoint of institutional police racism in the uk i thought was really important but at the same time just as a film it was so involving and i thought it really balanced the the harsh reality but also the the sense of community of the of that neighborhood in Notting Hill um I think we spoke when we reviewed it on the pod about the imagery that Steve McQueen uses what he chooses to linger on amazing I thought it was a really really great piece number 10 is I love this movie and I know a lot of people didn't Jojo Rabbit what did you love about it Chris uh well I thought Tyke's made his film again but I'm okay with that because his film is a winning combination of, of whimsy and darkness and great soundtrack and, uh, and young kids fighting to retain their innocence whilst being corrupted by dickhead older role models. Uh, not that Sam Neill's a dickhead in Hunt for the Wilder People, but yeah, you know I what I mean. Not. And uh, visually stunning as well. Has one of the year's best moments for me in terms of there's a really, really great reveal of a character's fate in this movie that I won't spoil. I know that some people really, really don't like it. And it is a tonal tightrope to walk when you're making a movie set in the dying days of Germany, World War II. But I think he pulled it off. The boy Taika, he's doing pretty damn well for me. He's uh, pretty good. He is pretty good, isn't he? Uh, and he can rock a tash like no one else. Number nine. Mank? Oh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it? <laughs> I, I I'm not going to step in for this one. I I Mank left me incredibly cold. Um, but I know I know it worked for a lot of people. Terry, are you a fan of Mank? It wasn't in my list, but I actually weirdly really like this film. And going against everything I just said about 1917, um, <laughs> I think this was a 
incredibly many respects self-indulgent piece of filmmaking and yet I found it impossibly moving and so satisfying and as a real love letter to Hollywood and to cinema even though it went out on Netflix um, I I don't know if something about this really captured me I found it incredibly compelling and incredibly moving and I did it was the last film I saw at the cinema before lockdown number two and I think that definitely played a part in it for me but I, I yeah I was incredibly moved by this fantastic performances too yes 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 yes, yes. and there are my praise of Mike Bullend Number eight, probably the year's best black and white movie, The Lighthouse. Yeah, The Lighthouse was mad. Like, just, I, I love Robert Eggers. I think it's really great to see him follow up The Witch with something that is as equally sort of trippy and unsettling. And just, like, the thing about The Lighthouse is that it feels like a film that has been dredged up from the ocean depths from about 100 years ago. <laughs> and you and it, you, you feel the salt, you feel that it's just this, like, this mad little lost thing that they dug up from a treasure chest or something and uh, incredible performance. Uh, it's got such a strange energy to it like the it's sort of Lovecraftian and sort of Freudian there's a lot of homoerotic like tension and imagery in there it's like a really really strange brew that you don't think anybody else really could have made and I think the Willem Dafoe and um, Robert Pattinson performances are great you believe it every step of the way and at the same time it feels you sort of feel the artifice to it but you're also sucked into it at the same time it's a really hard film to describe but um i saw this in the cinema and um i kind of stumbled out of it two hours later not quite sure what i felt um but knowing Mm. that i'd seen something that felt really singular number seven there's our boy mcqueen again with lover's rock there's something almost pornographic about Lover's Rock this year. We're in a time when we have not been able to st- sit in a room with anyone, uh, you know, to see a room crowded with people all singing and dancing and sweating together is is a, a, honestly a little bit unsafe for work. Mm-hmm. It is it is outrageous. But yeah, I mean, in terms of sheer atmosphere and in terms of sheer tactile, you know, power, I don't think anything's come cr- close to Lover's Rock this year, which is good because there's no kind of plot. I mean, like nothing, but <laughs> but you you know you still feel every moment of it. Uh, Steve McQueen had two entries in this year's top twenty, which is frankly greedy, and he could have had five mm. if only the other three had been better. Uh, number six, The Invisible Man. Oh, such a just a really classic horror movie done brilliantly, absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've we've already mentioned the restaurant scene, mm-hmm. but there are just so many scary moments played so well in this film. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, phenomenal. And Elizabeth Moss, what a woman. Yeah. Lee Wanell is really becoming a director to watch. Uh, Upgrade mm. was great. And this is even better. Uh, it's I, I, Honestly, I'm surprised and gratified to see it so high up in the top 20. Um, the top 10, let alone the top 20. My mm. God. Uh, speaking of horror films, here's another one. Number five, Saint Maud. Terry, I know you love this one. I mean, how is this Rose Glass's first film, seriously, to have that confidence, that vision to execute it so unflinchingly? I mean, Muffet Clark is just extraordinary mm-hmm. um, in this. I mean, there are moments of body horror, moments of weird kind of sexual horror. That's the only way I can think to describe it. It's full on um, kind of 
freaky tormented twisted horror at times it's so out there and so unapologetic in the vision that she kind of hones in on and then just goes full pelt for i love Mm. her confidence in this um and i mean i can't remember the last time i was this excited about a first time filmmaker and if this is the first time out Mm. the gate i don't know what we're going to get next and i'm absolutely delighted that this is in the top five absolutely Indeed, indeedly beadly. Uh, number four is actually, I think, on reflection, probably my film of the year, which is Sarah Gavron's Rocks. I mean, I just, I've talked about this already in this pod, but I absolutely adored this. I thought that um, Bucky Buckray is extraordinary as the lead, her kind of breakthrough performance. Her little brother, D'Angelo Osei Kisiedu, is adorable. He is like baby Yoda levels of adorable, but a a totally real child as well. And I just think that not only director Sarah Gravron, but the screenwriters as well, uh, Teresa Ikoko and Claire Wilson, like they, they, they listened to these girls. They listened to them. They learned about their lives. They spent a huge amount of time workshopping, you know, a story that would feel real and feel honest and feel authentic um, to modern you know, London girls, and that's what they've made, and and the, all that effort and all that work paid off, and it is, it is horrifying at times, it is delightful at times, it is just an encapsulation of what it feels like to be a teenager and have friends like I've never seen. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. And uh, again, ninety minutes. Go watch it. Ninety minutes. It's great, and it's not depressing like you think it might be. It really <laughs> isn't. Trust me. Uh, number three, uncut gems. I mean, as movie panic attacks go, you know, it, it doesn't get much better than this. I, I don't think I've ever seen a thriller that doesn't have a set piece in the way that this is just like one kind of <laughs> consistent escalation of a bad situation that is so, so tense. But it's not like there are bits of it that you can pull out. It's like it is its own thing. I've never seen a film yeah. like this before. It feels very singular to the Safties. Adam Sandler is amazing in it. The ending has really stayed with me mm. and I'm, I, mm. I won't spoil it. I think there's a real, I think the things that it manages to pull off without feeling completely nihilistic, there's like a weird damaged yeah. heart to this film that stops it from feeling cold. Um, especially you have to root for Howie because he's making the worst decisions all the time. What are you doing? I mean, of course, it's not the best Adam Sandler film of the year on Netflix. No, nope. oh my but, God. Um, Thank you, Ben. No. Yes, yes, um, yes. Holy look, shit, I'm going to come. We've mentioned that film like 16 <laughs> times more than it deserves in this podcast. Please. Oh. And a happy Hubie Halloween to you too, Helen. No, no. Helen, this is how he wins. It, I don't think it is, though. I think it is. Anyway, but yeah, Uncut Gems, unbelievable. Yes. Number two, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Speaking of ladies on fire... It's Terry White. <laughs> this is an absolute oh masterpiece. The lights came back on. Oh, See, it's a power, Christmas miracle. The power of a portrait of a lady on fire. I think that was my loins that turned it back on then. Um oh my, <laughs> my loins could turn on the lights. Um that's it's a- not the worst thing that's been said in the last three minutes in this <laughs> no. podcast, in fairness. No. Um uh Portrait of Lady on Fire, absolute masterpiece. Doesn't so much kind of uh, relegate the male gaze and set the male gaze on fire, throw it in a skip and then throw that <laughs> skip in the sea. The passion, the absolute kind of 
love and lust and intimacy between these women, the way their relationship grows throughout this film. And as I mentioned before, the, the final scene is, is for me the most devastating mm. and emotional piece of cinema this year. I think that I just think every second of this film is exquisite. Yeah, I want to frame every frame yeah. and put it on my wall. <laughs> I mean, there's genuinely, there's not a, there's not a moment in this film that, that isn't worthy of that, genuinely. You know, mm. it is... Yeah astonishing and it's a uh, such an unexpected sequel to the jane campion movie i have to say i hope <sighs> it'll it'll start a carry-on style portrait of a lady cinematic universe perhaps the next one could be portrait of a lady up the jungle or portrait of a lady up the kyber or portrait of a lady follow that camel i think that might be a good way to go uh <sighs> yes number one the number one movie of this year is the best picture winner of this year it is a movie that came out in february in this country which is why it's on our list it has been universally heralded we gave it a spoiler special uh we love this movie unreservedly it is bong joon ho's parasite uh we talked about this movie ad infinitum so i'm gonna ask you all three to give me one word to sum up parasite unpredictable it's a boring word, but it's didn't true. See I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I didn't know what was going to happen at any moment in this movie, and I loved that about it. I didn't even know what genre it was because it it switches genres in a way that very very few films can ever manage. See what Henley did there, folks. That is a trained lawyer. She mm -hmm. took her one word and then she added about fifty-seven onto the end. Oh, That's yeah. what you need to do. Terry, what's your one word? My one Plus word 20. is searing critique of poverty. The smell. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of hyphens there. That's, that's a haiku, isn't it? What yeah. <laughs> critique of poverty, the smell. The smell. The smell, the whole thing around the smell. Oh, right, and right, that, yes, And that yes, being a yes. signifier, the, that yes. use of that one tiny thing to communicate so much about the reality of, of social structures and of class structures mm -hmm. and, and how people are identified through class and, and the signifiers we live with day to day that don't mean much to you, but if you're somebody who lives in poverty, those are the things that mark you out and that, you know, dehumanise you. Sorry, that became a... That became a Spoken word no, it's true, We've already glommed on to this one word concept and I'm loving it. <laughs> ben, what is your one word? My one word is uh, bong. <laughs> bong. <laughs> it's, do, do I now do what everyone else does and elaborate yes, on my of course, one word? Of course. Okay. Um, Fuck it me. just feels the most director bong of, of anything. It feels like a film that only he could make. It feels like the probably greatest feat that he has had so far in melding all these different genres. Um, it's so playful, but it's serious and it's funny and it's kind of scary and it's really intense. And I love that this film has just captured people. Like it, 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 it stole the Oscars out from under everybody else because it is just so damn good. I showed it to my mum and dad. We watched it together in the summer. And uh, it was a school night, uh, which is what I call midweek. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we were going to watch it across two evenings um, so that it wasn't too late. So, but what I did was I set the break point when the housekeeper turns up and I paused it when the housekeeper turned up and they were like, we're going to watch the rest of it right now. Because <laughs> that's what Parasite does. It sucks you in. One word. One. <laughs> one word. I gave you the word. It was bong. 
And then we all, we, popular demand, Chris, was that he explained himself. Because oh, I geez. said bong and then stopped and then everybody looked at me like, he's just going to say the one word? Hey, Chris, let's hear your one word review because, you know, I don't yeah, remember Chris. the last time you no, ever Helen, stopped at one word. No, Helen, I refuse word. to pander to such things. I'm an iconoclast. I cannot be boxed in by your rules. Anyway, really, really quickly, is there a film that's not on the list that you would put in the list? I had uh, in my top 10, I had Trial of Chicago 7, I had King of Staten Island, I had His House, none of those made the list. But uh, Waves and The Vast of Night, I've mentioned them a bunch, but both of those. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had, not on the list, I had Wolf Walkers, Les Mis- mm-hmm. Miserables, the incredible French film that's like a spiritual successor to Lion, uh, Trial of Chicago 7 again, and mm-hmm. Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. I'm pretty sure that there was stuff on my list that aren't, isn't on the list, um, but I can't remember. On that note, that is it for this bumper-sized Review of the Year podcast. And that is it for the Empire podcast for another year. We won't be back until January 8th with the regular show, although there will be some spoiler specials coming your way over the Christmas break. And around about January 4th, around about then, we're going to have our first proper big spoiler special of the year, which is Soul, with the directors Pete Docter, Kemp Powers, and producer Dana Murray as well. That's going to be a two-parter. It's that bloody big. But that is it. Guys, it's been a hell of a ride. I have been very, very privileged to share it with some of you. I want to thank you for your time on today's podcast. It is my colleagues of such lethal cunning. Good Riddance 2020, a.k.a. Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Ben Demick, (laughs) a.k.a. Ben Travis. Goodbye. And of course, our editor-in-chief sitting there in the dark. The lights have gone out again, haven't they, Terry? (laughs) Yes, they have. Yes, they have. Uh, Which is... Again, a very apt metaphor for everything. Uh, It is, of course, Terry White. Goodbye, Terry White. Tenant is tenant backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) This is brand new information that might just unlock that movie from me. Uh, And it's goodbye from me. Once again, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and the spoiler specials and supporting us so much through 2020. Uh, It really does mean a lot to us. And I hope we can count on your continued support into 2021. Uh, If you're listening to this, it's after Christmas. So have a great new year, everybody. Let's kick this bloody virus's ass. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. I'm off to describe Parasite in one word. And maybe sometime. (laughs) Bye-bye.